Chapter Twenty Four of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in January two thousand eleven. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter Twenty Four. Water for Drinking. General Remarks. In most of those countries where travelling is arduous, it is the daily care of an explorer to obtain water, for his own use and for that of his caravan. Should he be travelling in regions that are for the most part arid and rarely visited by showers, he must look for his supplies in ponds made by the drainage of a large extent of country, or in those left here and there along the beds of partly dried up watercourses, or in fountains if he be unsuccessful in his search or when the dry season of the year has advanced and all water has disappeared from the surface of the land there remains no alternative for him but to dig wells where there are marks to show that pools formerly lay or where there are other signs that well water may be obtained short stages i may here remark that it is a good general rule for an explorer of an arid country when he happens to come to water after not less than three hours travelling to stop and encamp by it it is better for him to avail himself of his good fortune and be content with his day's work than to risk the uncertainty of another supply purity of watering places make no litter by the side of watering places and encourage among your party the mohammedan feeling of respect for preserving the purity of drinking water old travellers commonly encamp at a distance from the watering place and fetch the water to their camp signs of the neighbourhood of water the quick intelligence with which experienced travellers discover watering-places is so great that it might almost be mistaken for an instinct. Intelligence of dogs and cattle Dogs are particularly clever in finding water, and the fact of a dog looking refreshed, and it may be wet, has often and often drawn attention to a pond that would otherwise have been overlooked and passed by cattle are very uncertain in their intelligence sometimes oxen go for miles and miles across a country unknown to them straight to a pond of water at other times they are most obtuse dr leichardt the australian traveller was quite astonished at their stupidity in this respect trees and ordinary vegetation are not of much help in directing a traveller to water for they thrive on dew or on occasional rain but it is otherwise when the vegetation is unusually green or luxuriant or when those trees are remarked that are seldom seen to grow except near water in the particular country visited as the blackthorn tree in south africa birds some species of birds as waterfowl parrots and the diamond bird or animals as baboons afford surer promise but the converging flight of birds or the converging fresh tracks of animals is the most satisfactory sign of all it is about nightfall that desert birds usually drink and hence it often happens that the exhausted traveller abandoning all hope as the shades of evening close in 
has his attention arrested by flights of birds that give him new life and tell him where to go. Tracks In tropical countries that have rainy and dry seasons, it must be recollected that old paths of men or wild animals only mislead. They go to dry ponds that were full at the time they were trodden, but have since been abandoned on becoming exhausted. Other signs well water may be sought where the earth is still moist though arid all around or failing that where birds and wild animals have lately been scratching or where gnats hover in swarms to find the spring from the number of birds tracks and other signs travellers are often pretty sure that they are near water but cannot find the spring itself in this case, the party should at once be spread out as skirmishers, and the dogs cheered on. To probe for well water. It is unusual, when no damp earth can be seen, but where the place appears likely to yield well water, to force an iron ramrod deep into the soil, and, if it brings up any grains that are moist, to dig. Pools of water. For many days after there has been rain, water is sure to be found among mountains, however desert may be their appearance, for not only does more wet fall upon them, but the drainage is more perfect. Long after the ravens and stream beds are quite dry, puddles and cupfuls of water will be found here and there, along their courses, in holes and chinks and under great stones, which together form a sufficiency. A sponge tied to the end of a stick will do good service in lapping these up. The sandy beds of watercourses in arid countries frequently contain pools of stagnant water, but the places where these pools are to be found are not necessarily those where they have been found in preceding years. The conditions necessary for the existence of a pool are not alone those of the rocky substratum of the river bed, but more especially the stratifications of mud and clay left after each flooding. For instance, an extensive bed of sand, enclosed between two layers of clay, would remain moist and supply well water during the dry season, but a trivial variation in the force and amount of the current, in different years, might materially affect the place and the character of the deposition of these clay strata. In searching the beds of partly dried up watercourses, the fact must never be forgotten that it is especially in little tributaries, at the point where they fall into the main one, that most water is to be found, and the most insignificant of these should never be overlooked. I presume that the bar, which always accumulates in front of tributaries, and is formed of numerous layers of alluvial deposit, parallel to the bed of the great stream, is very likely to have one, at least, of its layers of an impervious character. If so, the bar would shut in the wet sand of the tributary, like a wall, and prevent it from draining itself dry. When a river-bed has been long followed by a traveller, and a frequent supply of water found along it, in pools or even in wells, say at every five or ten miles, then, should this river-bed appear to lose itself in a plain that is arid, there is no reason why the traveller should be disheartened, for, on travelling further, the water will be sure to be found again, 
those plains being always green and grassy where the water in such river-beds entirely disappears by seashore fresh water is frequently to be found under the very sands of the seashore whither it has oozed underground from the upper country and where it overlies the denser salt water or else abuts against it if the compactness of the sand resists free percolation in very many places along the skirt of the great african desert fresh water is to be found by digging two or three feet fountains fountains in arid lands are as godsends they are far more numerous and abundant in limestone districts than in any others owing to the frequent fissures of those rocks therefore whenever limestone crops out in the midst of sand deserts a careful search should be made for water in granite and other primary rocks many but small springs are usually seen the theory of ordinary fountains is simple enough and affords help in discovering them in a few words it is as follows all the water that runs from them has originally been supplied by rain dew or fog damp falling on the face of the land and sinking into it but the subsoil and rocks below are far from being of a uniform character they are full of layers of every imaginable degree of sponginess strata of clay wholly impenetrable by water often divide beds of gravel that imbibe it freely there are also cracks that made continuous channels and dislocations that caused them to end abruptly and there are rents filled with various materials that may either give a free passage or entirely bar the underground course of water hence when water has sunk into the earth it does not by any means soak through it in an equable degree it is an easier matter for it to ooze many miles along a layer of gravel than to penetrate six inches into a layer of clay that may bound the gravel therefore whenever a porous earth or a fissured rock crops out to the light of day there is in ignorance of all other facts some chance of a spring being discovered in the lowest part of the outcrop a favorable condition for the existence of a large and permanent fountain is where a porous stratum spreads over a broad area at a high level and is prolonged by a gradually narrowing course to an outlet at a lower one the broad upper part of the stratum catches plenty of water during the wet season which sinks into the depths as into a reservoir and oozes out in a regular stream at its lower outlet a fissured rock makes a still easier channel for the water as examples of ordinary cases of fountains we will take those represented in the following figures figure one is a mountain figure two is a model made to explain more clearly the conditions represented in figure one it will be observed that there is a raven r in front a line of fault l m n on its left side supposed to be filled with water-tight rock and a valley v figure one on the extreme right the upper part of the mountain is supposed to be much more porous than its base and the plane which divides the porous from the non-porous rock to cut the surface of the mountain along the line a n m b c d e f the highest point of the plane is f and the lowest point a the effect of rain upon the model figure two would be 
to wet its upper half water would ooze out along the whole of the lines an and mbc def and there would be a small fountain at a and a large one at m but in the actual mountain figure one we should not expect to find the same regularity as in the model the rind of the earth with its vegetation and water impacted surface forms a comparatively impermeable envelope to the mountain not likely to be broken through except at a few places but ravens such as are would be probably denuded of their rind and there we should find a line of minute fountains at the base of the porous rock if there be no actual fountains there would at least be some vegetation that indicated dripping water thus the appearance is well known and often described of a ravin utterly bare of verdure above but clothed with vegetation below a sharply defined line whence the moisture proceeds that irrigates all beneath we should also be almost certain of finding a spring breaking forth near m or even near a but in the valley v we should only see a few signs of former moisture along e f such as bunches of vegetation upon the arid cliff or an efflorescence of salts whenever a traveller remarks these signs he should observe the inclination of the strata by which he would learn the position of m where the probability of finding water is the greatest in a very arid country the anatomy of the land is so manifest from the absence of mould that geological indications are peculiarly easy to follow wells digging wells in default of spades water is to be dug for with a sharp pointed stick take it in both hands and holding it upright like a dagger stab and dig it in the ground as in figure one then clear out the loose earth with the hand as in figure two continue thus working with the stick and hand alternately and a hole as deep as the arm is easily made in digging a large hole or well the earth must be loosened in precisely the same manner handed up to the surface and carried off by means of a bucket or bag in default of a shovel and wheelbarrow after digging deeply the sand will often be found just moist no water actually lying in the well but do not therefore be disheartened wait a while and the water will collect after it has once begun to ooze through the sides of the well it will continue to do so much more freely therefore on arriving at night with thirsty cattle at a well of doubtful character deepen it at once by torchlight that the water may have time to collect then the cattle may be watered in the early morning and sent to feed before the sun is hot it often happens when digging wells in sandy watercourses that a little water is found and that below it is a stratum of clay now if the digging be continued deeper in hopes of more water the result is often most unfortunate for the clay stratum may prove extremely thin in which case the digging will pierce it then the water that had been seen will drain rapidly and wholly away to the other discomfiture of the traveller kerkari i am indebted to correspondence for an account of a method employed in the plains of the sikkim himalaya and in assam where it is called a kerkari also in lower bengal for digging deep holes 
the natives take a freshly cut bamboo say three inches in diameter they cut it just above one of the knots and then split the wood as far as to the next joint in about a dozen places and point the pieces somewhat the other end of the instrument should be cut slantingly to thrust into the earth and its other end is afterwards worked vertically with both hands the soft soil is thus forced into the hollow of the bamboo and spread out its blades as is intended to be shown in the figure the bamboo is next withdrawn and the plug of earth is shaken out it is then reintroduced and worked up and down as before it is usual to drive a stake in the ground to act as a toothed comb to comb out the plug of earth mr peel writes from assam quote, i have just had four holes dug in the course of ordinary work in hard earth two men dug the holes in one and a half hour they were three feet six inches deep and six inches in diameter i weighed the clay raised at each stroke in four consecutive strokes the weighs were one and a quarter pounds one three quarter pounds one three quarter pounds two pounds another trial gave seven pounds lifted after five or six strokes according to the above data an assamese workman makes a hole one foot deep and six inches in diameter in six minutes holes six feet deep and six inches wide can be made as i am informed by this contrivance protecting wells the following extract from bishop heber though hardly within the scope of the art of travel is very suggestive Quote, the wells of this country Burtpur, india some of which are very deep are made in a singular manner they build a tower of masonry of the diameter required and twenty or thirty feet high from the surface of the ground this they allow to stand a year or more till its masonry is rendered firm and compact by time then they gradually undermine it and promote its sinking into the sandy soil which it does without difficulty and altogether when level with the surface they raise its walls higher and so go on throwing out the sand and raising the wall till they have reached the water if they adopted our method the soil is so light that it would fall on them before they could possibly raise the wall from the bottom nor without the wall could they sink to any considerable depth a stout square frame of wood scantling bordered like a sentry box and of about the same size and shape but without top or bottom is used in making wells in america the sides of a well in sandy soil are so liable to fall in that travellers often sink a cask or some equivalent into the water when they are encamped for any length of time in its vicinity scanty wells in hot climates should be brushed over when not in actual use to check their evaporation snow water it is impossible for men to sustain life by eating snow or ice instead of drinking water they only aggravate the raging torments of thirst instead of assuaging them and hasten death among dogs the eskimo is the only breed that can subsist on snow as an equivalent for water the arctic animals generally have the same power 
but as regards mankind some means of melting snow into water for the purposes of drinking is an essential condition of life in the arctic regions without the ingenious eskimo lamp which consists of a circle of moss wicks fed by train oil and chiefly used for melting snow the eskimo could not exist throughout the year in the countries which they now inhabit that eating large quantities of snow should seriously disturb the animal system is credible enough when we consider the very large amount of heat that must be abstracted from the stomach in order to melt it a mouthful of snow at thirty two degrees fahrenheit that is to say no colder than is necessary for it to be snow at all robs as much heat from the stomach as if the mouthful had been of water one hundred forty three degrees colder than ice water if such a fluid may for the moment be imagined to exist for the latent heat of water is one hundred forty three degrees fahrenheit in other words it takes the same quantity of heat to convert a mass of snow of thirty two degrees into water of thirty two degrees as it does to raise the same mass of water from thirty two degrees to one hundred forty one degrees plus thirty one degrees equals one hundred seventy five degrees fahrenheit it takes in practice about as long to melt snow of a low temperature into water as it does to cause that same water to boil thus to raise snow of five degrees below zero fahrenheit to thirty two degrees takes thirty seven degrees of heat and it requires one hundred forty three degrees more or one hundred eighty degrees altogether to melt it into water also it requires one hundred eighty degrees to convert water of thirty two degrees into water of two hundred twelve degrees in other words into boiling water distilled water it will take six or seven times as long to convert a kettle full of boiling water into steam as it did to make that kettle boil for the latent heat of steam is nine hundred sixty seven degrees fahrenheit therefore if the water that was put into the kettle was sixty degrees it would require to be raised through two hundred twelve degrees minus sixty degrees equals 152 degrees of temperature in order to make it begin to boil and it would require a further quantity of heat to the extent of 967 degrees that is about six and a half times 152 degrees to boil it all away hence it is of no use to attempt to distill until you have provided abundance of good firewood of a fit size to burn quickly and have built an efficient fireplace on which to set the kettle unfortunately fuel is commonly deficient in those places where there is a lack of fresh water rate of distillation a drop per second is fully equivalent to an imperial pint of water in three hours or be an imperial gallon in an entire day and night the simplest way to distill but a very imperfect one is to light a fire among stones near a hollow in a rock that is filled or can be filled with salt water when the stones are red hot drop them one by one into it the water will hiss and give out clouds of vapor some of which may be collected in a cloth and wrung or sucked out of it 
In the same way, a pot on the fire may have a cloth stretched over it to catch the steam. Still made with a kettle and gun barrel. There is an account of the crew of the Levant Packet, which was wrecked near the Cosmolido Islands, who supplied themselves with fresh water by means of distillation alone, and whose still was contrived with an iron pot and a gun barrel, found on the spot where they were wrecked. They procured on the average sixty bottles or ten gallons of distilled water in each twenty-four hours. Quote, the iron pot was converted into a boiler to contain salt water. A lid was fitted to it out of the root of a tree, leaving a hole of sufficient size to receive the muscle of the gun barrel, which was to set as a steam pipe. The barrel was run through the stump of a tree, hollowed out in the middle, and kept full of cold water for the purpose of condensation, and the water so distilled escaped at the nipple of the gun barrel, and was conducted into a bottle placed to receive it. End quote. The accompanying sketch is taken from a model which I made, with a soldier's mess tin for a boiler, and a tin tube in the place of a gun barrel. The knob represents the breech and the projection through which the water is dropping, the nipple. I may remark that there is nothing in the arrangement which would hurt the most highly finished gun barrel, and that the throw which holds the condensing water may be made with canvas, or even dispensed with altogether. Condensing Pipe In default of other tubes, a reed may be used. One of the long bones of an animal, or of a wading bird, will be an indifferent substitute for a condensing pipe. Still made with earthen pots and a metal basin. A very simple distilling apparatus is used in Bhutan. The sketch will show the principle on which it is constructed. Salt water is placed in a pot set over the fire. Another vessel, but without top or bottom, which, for the convenience of illustration, I have indicated in the sketch by nothing more than a dotted line, is made to stand upon the pot. It serves as a support for a metal basin, S, which is filled with salt water and acts as a condenser. When the pot boils, the steam ascends and condenses itself on the under surface of the basin S, whence it drops down and is collected in a cup C, that is supported by a rude tripod of sticks, T, standing in the inside of the iron pot. Occasional Means of Quenching Thirst A shower of rain will yield a good supply. The clothes may be stripped off and spread out, and the rainwater sucked from them. Or, when a storm is approaching, a cloth or blanket may be made fast by its four corners, and a quantity of bullets thrown in the middle of it, they will cause the water that it receives to drain to one point and trickle through the cloth into a cup or bucket set below. A reversed umbrella will catch water, but the first drippings from it, or from clothes that have been long unwashed, as from a Macintosh cloak, are intolerably nauseous and very unwholesome. It must be remembered that thirst is greatly relieved by the skin being wetted, and therefore it is well for a man suffering from thirst to strip to the rain. Rainwater is lodged for some days in the huge pitcher-like corollas of many tropical flowers. Seawater Lives of sailors have more than once been saved when turned adrift in a boat, 
by bathing frequently and keeping their clothes damp with salt water. However, after some days the nauseous taste of the salt water is very perceptible in the saliva, and at last becomes unbearable, such at least was the experience of the surgeon of the wrecked Pandora. Dew water is abundant near the seashore, and may be collected in the same way as rainwater. The storehouse at Angra Pequeña in southwest Africa in 1850 was entirely supplied by the dew water deposited on its roof. The Australians who live near the sea go among the wet bushes with a great piece of bark and brush into it the dewdrops from the leaves with a wisp of grass, collecting in this way large quantities of water. Air used a sponge for the same purpose and appears to have saved his life by its use. Animal fluids are resorted to in emergencies, such as the contents of the paunch of an animal that has been shot. Its taste is like sweetwort. Mr. Darwin writes of people who, catching turtles, drank the water that was found in their pericardia. It was pure and sweet. Blood will stand in the stead of solid food, but it is of no avail in the stead of water, on account of its saline qualities. Vegetable Fluids Many roots exist from which both natives and animals obtain a sufficiency of sap and pulp to take the place of water. The traveller should inquire of the natives, and otherwise acquaint himself with those peculiar to the country that he visits, such as the roots which the eland eats, the bitter watermelon, etc. To purify water that is muddy or putrid. With muddy water the remedy is to filter and to use alum if you have it. With putrid to boil, to mix with charcoal, or to expose to the sun and air, or what is best, to use all three methods at the same time. When the water is salt or brackish, nothing avails but distillation. To filter muddy water. When, at the watering place, there is little else but a mess of mud and filth, take a good handful of grass or rushes and tie it roughly together in the form of a cone, six or eight inches long, then dipping the broad end into the puddle and turning it up. A streamlet of fluid will trickle down the small end. This excellent plan is used by the northern bushmen. At their wells, quantities of these bundles are found lying about. Otherwise, suck water through your handkerchief by putting it over the mouth of your mug, or by throwing it on the gritty mess as it lies in the puddle. For obtaining a copious supply, the most perfect plan, if you have means, is to bore a cask full of auger holes and put another small one that has had the bottom knocked out inside it and then to fill the space between the two with grass moss etc sink the hole in the midst of the pond the water will run through the auger holes filter through the moss and rise in the inner cask clear of weeds and sand if you have only a single cask holes may be bored in the lower part of its sides and alternate layers of sand and grass thrown in, till they cover the holes. Through these layers the water will strain. Or any coarse bag kept open with hoops made on the spot may be moored into the mud by placing a heavy stone inside. 
it will act on the same principle but less efficiently than the casks sand charcoal sponge and wood are the substances most commonly used in properly constructed filters peat charcoal is excellent charcoal acts not only as a mechanical filter for solid impurities but it has the further advantage of absorbing putrid gases snow is also used as a filter in the arctic regions dr ray used to lay it on the water until it was considerably higher than its level and then to suck the water through the snow alum turbid water is also in some way as yet insufficiently explained made clear by the indian plan of putting a piece of alum into it the alum appears to unite with the mud and to form a clayey deposit independently of the action it has an astringent effect upon organic matters it hardens them and they subside to the bottom of the vessel instead of being diffused in a glary viscous state throughout the water no taste of alum remains in the water unless it has been used in great excess three thimblefuls of alum will clarify a bucketful of turbid water putrid water should always be purified by boiling it together with charcoal or charred sticks as low fevers and dysenteries too often are the consequences of drinking it the mere addition of charcoal largely disinfects it bitter herbs if steeped in putrid water or even rubbed well about the cup are said to render it less unwholesome the indians plunge hot iron into putrid water thirst to relieve thirst is a fever of the palate which may be somewhat relieved by other means than drinking fluids by exciting saliva the mouth is kept moist and thirst is mitigated by exciting the saliva to flow this can be done by chewing something as a leaf or by keeping in the mouth a bullet or a smooth non-absorbent stone such as a quartz pebble by fat or butter in australia africa and north america it is a frequent custom to carry a small quantity of fat or butter and to eat a spoonful at a time when the thirst is severe these act on the irritated membranes of the mouth and throat just as cold cream upon chapped hands by salt water people may live long without drinking if they have means of keeping their skin constantly wet with water even though it be salt or otherwise undrinkable a traveller may tie a handkerchief wetted with salt water round his neck by checking evaporation the arabs keep their mouths covered with a cloth in order to prevent the sense of thirst caused by the lips being parched by diet drink well before starting and make a habit of drinking only at long intervals and then plenty at a time on giving water to persons nearly dead from thirst give a little at a time let them take it in spoonfuls for the large draughts that their disordered instincts suggest disarrange the weakened stomach they do serious harm and no corresponding good keep the whole body wet small water vessels general remarks on carrying water 
People drink excessively in hot, dry climates, as the evaporation from the skin is enormous and must be counterbalanced. Under these circumstances, the daily ration of a European is at least two quarts. To make an exploring expedition in such countries efficient, there should be means of carrying at least one gallon of water for each white man, and in unknown lands this quantity should be carried on from every watering place, so long as means can possibly be obtained for carrying it, and should be served out thus. Two quarts on the first day, in addition to whatever private store the man may have chosen to carry for themselves. A quart and a half during the second day, and half a quart on the morning of the third, which will carry them through the day without distress. Besides water vessels sufficient for carrying what I have mentioned, there ought to be others for the purpose of leaving water buried in the ground, as a store for the return of a reconnoitring expedition. Also, each man should be furnished with a small water vessel of some kind or other for his own use, and should be made to take care of it. Fill the water vessels. Quote, Never mind what the natives may tell you concerning the existence of water on the road. Believe nothing, but resolutely determine to fill the gerbas, water vessels. End quote. Baker. Small water vessels. No expedition should start without being fully supplied with these, for no bushman, however ingenious, can make anything so efficient as casks, tin vessels, or mackintosh bags. A tin vessel of the shape shown in the sketch, and large enough to hold a quart, is, I believe, the easiest to carry, the cleanest, and the most durable of small-water vessels. The curve in its shape is to allow of its accommodating itself to the back of the man who carries it. The tin loops at its sides are to admit the strap by which it is to be slung, and which passes through the loops underneath the bottom of the vessel so that the weight may rest directly upon the strap. Lastly, the vessel has a pipette for drinking through, and a larger hole by which it is to be filled, and which at other times is stopped with a cork or wooden plug. When drinking out of the pipette, the cork must be loosened in order to admit air, like a vent hole. Mackintosh bags for wine or water are very convenient to carry, and they will remain watertight for a long period when fairly used. Note, oil and grease are as fatal to Mackintosh as they are to iron rust. But the taste that these vessels impart to their contents is abominable, not only at first, but for a very long time. In two-thirds of them it is never to be got rid of. Never believe shopkeepers in an India rubber shop in their assurances to the contrary. They are incompetent to judge right, for their senses seem vitiated by the air they live in. The best shape for a small Macintosh water vessel has yet to be determined. Several Alpine men use them, and their most recent patterns may probably best be seen at Carter's, Alpine Outfitter, Oxford Street. A flask of dressed hide pig, goat, or dog, with a wooden nozzle and a wooden plug to fit into it, is very good. Canvas bags, smeared with grease on the outside, will become nearly waterproof after a short soaking. A strong glass flask may be made out of a soda-water bottle. 
it should have raw hide shrunk upon it to preserve it from sharp taps likely to make a crack calabashes and other gourds coconuts and ostrich eggs are all of them excellent for flasks the bushmen of south africa make great use of ostrich shells as water vessels they have stations at many places in the desert where they bury these shells filled with water corked with grass and occasionally waxed over they thus go without hesitation over wide tracts for their sense of locality is so strong that they never fear to forget the spot in which they have dug their hiding-place when a dutchman or namaka wants to carry a load of ostrich eggs to or from the watering-place or when he robs a nest he takes off his trousers ties up the ankles puts the eggs in the legs and carries off his load slung round his neck nay i have seen a half-civilized hottentot carry water in his leather breeches tied up and slung in the way i have just described but without the intervention of ostrich eggs the water squirted through the seams but plenty remained after he had carried it to its destination which was a couple of miles from the watering-place in an emergency water flasks can be improvised from the raw or dry skin of animals which should be greased down the back or from the paunch the heart bag pericardium the intestines or the bladder these should have a wooden skewer running in and out along one side of their mouths by which they can be carried and a lashing under the skewer to make all tight the bushmen do this the water oozes through the membrane and by its evaporation the contents are kept very cool another plan is after having tied a length of intestine at both ends to roll it up in a handkerchief and wear it as a belt round the waist the fault of these membranous bags besides their disgusting character and want of strength is that they become putrid after a few days use vessels for cooling water may be made that shall also act efficiently as flasks porous earthen jars are too brittle for long use and their pores choke up if slimy water be put inside them but the arabs use a porous leather flask called semsemia which is hung on the shady side of the camel and by evaporation keeps the water deliciously cool it is a rather wasteful way of carrying water canvas bags are equally effective open buckets for carrying water for short distances or for storing it in camp may be made of the bark of a tree either taken off in an entire cylinder and having a bottom fitted on or else of a notch or excrescence that has been cut off the outside of a tree and its woody interior scooped out or of birth bark sewed or packed at the corners and having its seams coated with the gum or resin of the pine tree baskets with oiled cloth inside make efficient water vessels they are in use in france as firemen's buckets water-tight pots are made on the snake river by winding long touch roots in a spiral manner and lashing the coils to one another such as is done in making a beehive earthenware jars are excellent when they can be obtained to prevent splashing when carrying water in buckets put a wreath of grass or something else that will float on the water to prevent it from splashing 
and also make a hoop inside which the porter may walk while its laden hands rest on its rim the hoop keeps his hands wide from his body and prevents the buckets from knocking against his legs mending leather water vessels if a water vessel becomes leaky the hole should be caulked by stuffing a rag a wedge of wood a tuft of grass or anything else into it as shown in the upper figure and also in the left side of the lower one and then greasing or waxing it over a larger end must be seized upon the lips of the wound pinched up a thorn or other spike run through the lips and lastly a piece of twine lashed firmly round underneath the thorn the thorn keeps the string from slipping off when there is an opportunity the bag must be patched as is also shown in the figure repairing a battered metal flask fill it with dry seed such as peas or mustard seed then pour in water and put a stopper into it after a period varying from one to three or four hours according to the nature of the seeds they will begin to swell and to force the sides of the flask outwards into their original shape the swelling proceeds rather rapidly after it has once commenced so the operation requires watching lest it should be overdone and the flask should burst corks and stoppers thrust a cork tightly into the mouth of the flask cut a hole through the cork and plug the hole which will henceforth form the outlet of the flask with a stopper of wood bone or other hard substance thread wound round a slightly conical plug that has been sufficiently notched to retain in its place makes it nearly watertight as a stopper it is of less importance that the stopper should fit closely if the flask be so slung that its mouth shall be always uppermost a very imperfect cork will then be sufficient to check evaporation and splashing and to prevent the loss of more than a few drops from occasional upsets drinking when riding or walking it is an awkward matter to drink when jolting on wheels on horseback or on foot i adopted the plan of carrying a piece of small india rubber tubing six or eight inches long and when i wished to drink i removed the stopper and inserted the tube just as an insect might let down its proboscis and sucked the contents sir s baker says of the people of unyoro quote, during a journey a pretty bottle-shaped long-necked gourd is carried with a store of plantain cider the mouth of the bottle is stopped with a bundle of the white rush shreds through which a reed is inserted that reaches to the bottom thus the drink can be sucked up during the march without the necessity of halting nor is it possible to spill it by the movement of walking kegs and tanks kegs for pack saddles small barrels flattened equally on both sides so that their tops and bottoms shall be of an oval and not a circular shape are the most convenient vessels notwithstanding their weight for carrying water and pack saddles across a broken country they are exceedingly strong and require no particular attention while bags of leather or mackintosh suffer from thorns and natives secretly prick them during the march that they may suck a draught of water 
these kegs should not exceed twenty-two inches in length ten in extreme breadth and seven in extreme width a cask of these measurements would hold about forty pounds weight of water and its own weight might be fifteen pounds as the water is expended it is easy to replace the diminished weight by putting on a bag from one of the other packs before starting away into the bush these kegs should be satisfactorily fitted and adjusted to the pack saddle that is intended to carry them in such a way that they may be packed on to it with the least possible trouble a couple of leather or iron loops fixed to each keg and made to catch on to the hooks which are let flush into the sides of the pack saddle will effect this the sketch represents a section of the pack saddle at the place where one of the hooks is situated on either side but the front of the kegs themselves and not their section is given above and between the kegs lies a bag and a strap passing from the near side of the saddle goes over the whole burden and is buckled to a similar short strap on the other side it is of importance that the bunghole should be placed even nearer to the rim than where it is drawn for it is necessary that it should be convenient to pour out off and to pour into and that it should be placed on the highest part of the keg both when on the beast's back and also when it stands on the ground lest water should leak and be lost according to the above plan when water is ladled into it the rim keeps it from spilling and in pouring out water the run acts as a spout in making the bunghole a metal plate with a screw hole in it is firmly fixed in the face of the cask into this a wooden stopper bound with iron is made to screw natives would probably steal a metal one the stopper has a small head and a deeply cut neck by which it is tied to the cask and its body has a large hole bored in it which admits of a stick being put through to prise it round if it should become jammed a spigot to screw into the bunghole on arriving at camp might be really useful but if used a gimlet hole must be bored in the cask to act as an air vent a large tundish is very convenient and a spare plug might be taken but a traveller with a little painstaking could soon cut a plug with his own knife sufficiently well made to allow of its being firmly screwed in and of retaining the water if it had a bit of rag wrapped around it a piece of rag rolled tightly will suffice to plug a hole siphons a flexible tube of some kind whether of india rubber gutta percha or still better of mackintosh strained over rings would be very valuable as a siphon both for filling large kegs out of buckets and for emptying them again vulcanized india rubber becomes rotten after short use and gutta percha will stand no extremes of temperature tanks for wagons there still remain many large districts in asia africa and australia which may be explored in wagons but so far as i am aware no particular pattern of a water tank suitable for carriage on wheels has yet been adopted by travellers i believe kegs are generally used but they are far too heavy for the requirements of a wagon probably the tins used for sending milk by cart and railway to towns would be very serviceable for carrying water on expeditions 
they are invariably made of the same shape and only of few different sizes therefore experience must have shown that their pattern is better than any other yet devised their mouths can be padlocked which is an important matter mackintosh bags i would also recommend a trial of square bags of strong mackintosh say eighteen inches deep and ten inches square in which case they would hold sixty pounds of water fitting into square compartments in large panniers like those in a bottle basket i have made some experiments upon this arrangement the basket work gives protection against blows and a jolting together of packages and it yields without harm to a strain and the bags yield also moreover water is less churned in half-empty bags than in half-empty barrels no unusual strength of materials would be required in making these bags their mouths should be funnel-shaped and corked at the neck of the funnel the funnels should be wide at their mouths for convenience in filling them and a string to secure the cork should be tied round the neck of the funnel the bags should have loops on their sides through which a strap passing underneath might run in order to give a good hold for lifting them up they could easily be filled as they lay in their compartments and would only require to be lifted out in order to empty them there is therefore no objection to their holding as much as sixty pounds weight of water an india rubber tube as a siphon and with a common spigot at the end of it would be particularly useful a pannier not much exceeding thirty inches long by twenty broad and eighteen deep would hold six of these bags or three hundred sixty pounds weight of water in all and two such panniers would be ample for exploring purposes i had a pannier and two bags made for a trial which were quite satisfactory and i found that the weight of the panniers and bags together was at the rate of six pounds for each compartment therefore the weight of these water vessels is not more than ten per cent of that of the water which they carry it might be well to vary the contents of some of the compartments putting for instance two or even three small bags into one and tin cases into a few of the others instead of the large bags these panniers with the bags inflated and connected together by a stage would form an excellent and powerful raft if secured within a wagon about to cross a deep river they would have enough power in all ordinary cases to cause it to float and not to sink to the bottom i trust some explorer will try this plan i may add that the mackintosh water-bags cost me about one pound each raw hide-bags captain sturt when he explored in australia took a tank in his cart which burst and besides that he carried casks of water by these he was enabled to face a desert country with a degree of success to which no traveller before had ever attained for instance when returning homewards the water was found to be drying up on all sides of him he was encamped by a pool where he was safe whence the next stage was one hundred eighteen miles or four days journey but it was a matter of considerable doubt whether there remained any water at the end of the stage it was absolutely necessary to reconnoitre and in order to do so he had first to provide the messenger with the means of returning should the watering-place be found dry he killed a bullock 
skinned it, and filled the skin with water, which held 150 gallons. Sent it by an X-ray, 30 miles, which orders to bury it and to return. Shortly after, he dispatched a light one-horse cart, carrying 36 gallons of water. The horse and man were to drink at the hide, and then to go on. Thus they had thirty-six gallon to supply them for a journey of one hundred seventy-six miles, or six days, at thirty miles a day at the close of which they would return to the ox-hide, sleeping, in fact, five nights on thirty-six gallons of water. This a hardy, well-driven horse could do, even in the hottest climate. To raise water from wells for cattle. By hand. Let one man stand in the water, or just above it, another five feet higher, and again one another higher still, if the depth of the well requires it. Then let the lowermost man dip a bucket in the water, and pass it from hand to hand upward. The top man pours the water into a trough, out of which the cattle drink. This trough may be simply a ditch scratched in the ground. A piece of canvas should be thrown over it, if the soil be sandy, to keep the water from being lost before the cattle have time to drink it. Thus Eyre speaks of watering his horse, out of his black servant's duck-frock. Light gutta-percha buckets are very useful in temperate climates, and so are baskets, with oilcloth inside them. The drove of cattle should be brought up to sixty yards from the watering-place. Then three or four should be driven out. They will run at once to the water. After they have drunk, drive them to one side, and let another three or four take their place, and so on, keeping the two droves quite distinct, those that have drunk, and those that are waiting to drink. They will drink at the rate of one per minute. Sheep and goats drink very much faster. Never let the cattle go in a rush to the well, else they will stamp it in, most of them get no water, and they will all do a great deal of damage. By horsepower. It does not fall within the scope of this book to describe water-wheels worked by cattle, or elaborate mechanisms of any kind. I therefore only mention under this head that the Tartars sometimes drew water from the wells of 150 feet deep and upwards, by a rider harnessing the bucket-rope to his horse, and galloping him off to a mark that tells the proper distance. The ropes are of twisted hair, and are made to run over a smoothed stone or a log of wood. A pole and bucket is a very convenient way of raising water from four to twelve feet. The bucket may be made of canvas, basket-work, leather, wood, or almost any other material. Leakage, though considerable, is of little consequence, because the action of the apparatus is so quick that there is no time for much water to be lost. This contrivance is used over almost the whole globe, less in England than elsewhere. It is very common where long poles can easily be obtained, as in fir forests. Pump An excellent and very simple pump is used by the Arabs in Algeria. A piece of leather or waxed canvas is stretched round one or more hoops. It forms a hollow cylinder that admits of being shut flat like an accordion. The top and bottom of the cylinder are secured round the edges of two discs of wood. 
holes are bored in these discs and leather valves are fitted to them the lower disc is nailed to the bottom of a tub the hole in it corresponds with the feed pipe and the valve that covers the hole opens upwards the upper disc is attached to the pump handle the valves that cover the holes in this disc open upwards also when the leather pump barrel is pressed flat water flows through the upper valves into the barrel around it when it is pulled out water is sucked up through the feed pipe and an equal quantity is displaced from the barrel this flows out into the trough a bag would do as well as a tub to hold the water which surrounds the pump barrel but without the water which it is the object of either the one or the other to contain the pump barrel must be air-proof as well as waterproof the action of this pump is marvellously perfect it attracted much attention in the french exhibition of eighteen fifty five end of chapter twenty four Chapter 25 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bobby Brill. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 25 Guns and Rifles. General Remarks. Breech Loaders. At the present time, when the merits of different kinds of breech-loader are so hotly discussed, when all that have yet been invented have some faults, and every month brings to light some new invention, it would be foolish in me to write anything about them. It would be obsolete before the great majority of my readers should have seen this book. Therefore, omitting breech-loaders altogether from the present edition, I will confine myself to repeating what I have said before upon muzzle-loaders, with additions and alterations. Size of Gun American bushrangers advocate a long, heavy pea rifle, on the plea of its accurate shooting and the enormous saving in weight of ammunition when bullets of a small size are used. The objections to small-board rifles are insufficiency against large game, even with conical bullets, and a tendency to become foul after a few shots. A short, light rifle whether with a large or a small bore, is, I believe, utterly worthless. In the hands of a man trembling with running and with exhaustion, it shakes like a wand. The shorter the rifle, the more quickly does it oscillate, and of course, in the same proportion, is it difficult to catch the exact moment when the sights cover the object. For the larger kind of game, such as elephants and buffaloes, experienced sportsmen mostly prefer guns of immense bore carrying round bullets that weigh a quarter of a pound. The recoil is tremendous, and would injure the shoulder if the sportsman did not use a pad against which he rests the gun. The guns must be strong, because very large charges of powder are invariably used when great power of penetration is required. African sportsmen found this out experimentally long before the idea occurred to artillerists. Sights the hind sight should be far from the eye, even though it be placed halfway down the barrel, else it becomes out of focus and indistinct. When the eye is firmly set on the object aimed at, 
This drawback is never compensated by the advantage of having the front and hind sights far asunder. Ramrod The guns of servants, and indeed those of their masters, should have thin, soft iron ramrods. The elasticity of these, when slightly bent, will retain them in the ramrod tubes. Both ends of the ramrod must be forged broad. Screw to secure the cock. In common guns, this screw is very liable to get loose, fall out, and be lost. It is therefore desirable to have one or more spare screws. Waterproof cover should not be forgotten. Rust to prevent. Paraffin or mercurial ointment are perhaps the two best things to keep rust off iron, in sea voyages or in boat shooting. Before embarking for a voyage, it is convenient to enclose the gun in a leaden case, which, on arrival, can be melted up into bullets. It is remarkable how much better dirty guns withstand rust than clean ones. Olive oil to purify. Put a piece of lead in the glass bottle that contains the oil and exposed to the sun. A quantity of cloudy matter will separate after a few days. Then the refined oil may be decanted. The small of the stock is the weakest part of a gun. It is constantly broke by falls in travel. Sir Samuel Baker justly recommends that all guns made for sport in wild countries and rough riding should have steel instead of iron from the breech socket extending far back to within six inches off the shoulder plate. The trigger guard should likewise be steel and should be carried back to an equal distance with the above rib. The steel should be of extra thickness and screwed through to the upper piece, thus the two being connected by screws above and below. No fall could break the stock. Injuries to guns. To repair, ramrod tubes often break off, and it is a very troublesome accident when they do so. I know of no contrivance to fasten them on again, except by using soft solder, the application of which will not in the least hurt the gun. Ashes at a dull red heat must be heaped over the barrel to warm it sufficiently before applying the solder. If the ramrod tubes have been lost, others made of tin may replace them. The sight of a gun, if it falls out and is lost, can easily be replaced by a substitute. A groove must be cut with a file across the substance of the barrel. If the gun be a single one or across the mid-rib, if double-barreled, into this a piece of iron, ivory, bone, horn, or hard wood, with a projection carved in the middle for the sight, must be pushed. Then the metal on either side must be battered down over it, with a hammer or stone, to keep it firm. A broken stock, however, much it may be smashed, can be well mended by rawhide, see hides. Blacksmith's work and carpentering are seldom sufficient for the purpose. It is within the power of a rough workman to make a gunstock, but it is a work of great labor. A ramrod may be replaced by cutting a stick from a tree, straightening it in the fire, and then seasoning it. See green wood. Guns to hang up, to carry, and to clean. Hanging guns to a wall. Fix a loop of leather for the muzzle and a strap and buckle for the stock, with a piece of sheepskin or canvas nailed so as to hang over it, as in Figure 1. 
A more complete way is to sew a long pocket with a flap to it, which is tied up onto a stick or bar, as in Figure 2. The gun has simply to be lifted out and in. The pocket must be made baggy at the part, which corresponds to the cocks of the gun. Carrying Guns on a Journey Look at the gun, but never let the gun look at you, or at your companions, is a golden rule. For among the chances of death to which a traveler is exposed, that of being shot by an attendant's gun going off accidentally ranks high. Servants should carry their guns with the cock down on a piece of rag that covers the cap. Take it all in all, it is the best plan for them. A sportsman will find great convenience in having a third nick cut in the tumbler of his lock, so as to give an additional low half-cock, at which the cock just clears the nipple. It will prevent the cap from falling off or receiving a blow. I have long used this plan, and find no objections to it. Many pistols are furnished with this contrivance. Careless gunmakers sometimes make this catch so low that when the cock is lifted a little back from it, and let go. It strikes the cap by reason of the elasticity of its metal and lets off the gun. The traveler should be aware of this fault of workmanship. As this book may fall into the hands of persons ignorant of the danger of carrying a gun with the cock down on the nipple, to which cause I find that three-fourths of gun accidents are owing, having once kept a list of those that were reported in the newspapers, I will remark that when the cock is down, a heavy blow on its back, nay, even the jar caused by the gun falling on the ground, will cause the cap to explode. Again, if the cock catch against the dress, or against a twig, it is liable to be lifted, when, on being released, it will snap down upon the cap. When a gun is at half cock, the first of these accidents obviously cannot occur, and, as to the second, if the cock be pulled back and let drop, it falls not down upon the cap, but to half-cock again, except only in the case where the trigger is also pressed back. The objections to carrying a gun at half-cock are that careless people occasionally leave it on full cock without perceiving the difference, and that there is a probability of weakening the main spring if day after day it be kept on the strain. Carrying Guns When Stalking Game in creeping after game, the gun is always troublesome. There is no better plan than pushing it as far as the arm can reach, then creeping up to it, and again pushing it forwards. Carrying guns on horseback. Allow me very strongly to recommend a trial of the following plan, even for a shooting pony in Scotland. It is the invention of the Namaquas, and I and all my party in South Africa used it for a year and a half, and many persons have adopted the plan in England since I first published a description of it. Sew a bag of canvas, leather or hide, of such a size as to admit the butt of the gun pretty freely. The straps that support the bag buckle through a ring in the pommel. The thongs by which the slope of the bag is adjusted are fastened round the girth below. The exact adjustment may not be hit upon by an unpracticed person for some time, but when they are once ascertained, the thongs need never be shifted. The gun is perfectly safe. It never comes below the armpit, even in taking a crop leap. It is pulled out in an instant by bringing the elbow forwards in front of the gun and then backwards, pressing it against the side. By this manner, the gun is thrown to the outside of the arm, 
Then, lowering the hand, catch the gun as near the trigger guard as you can, and lift it out of the bag. It is a bungling way to take out the gun whilst its barrel lies between the arm and the body. Any sized gun can be carried in this fashion, and it offers no obstacle to mounting or dismounting. I hear that some sportsmen, who were probably unacquainted with this method, have used a bag or pocket of stiff leather attached to the side of the saddle, just behind the right leg. Into this, when tired of carrying the gun, they push the butt. It is said to lie there securely and to give no trouble. The barrel passes forward under the right arm, and the muzzle is in front of the rider. The French dragoons carry a gun in a way that is convenient for military purposes because it does not interfere with the immense housing that cavalry soldiers require. But it is not so handy. It does not lie so freely as the above, nor is it as well suited to a traveler or a sportsman. The gun is placed butt downwards, as in the Namaqua method, and leans backwards in the same way. But the underside of the gun, instead of being backwards or towards the horse's tail, is towards his head. The butt lies in a shallow bucket, secured by two straps fixed to the front of the saddle. Another strap, leading from the pommel and passing over the right thigh of the reader, is hitched round the barrel of the gun, and has to be unbuckled and cast off when the gun is taken out. All ways of carrying the gun with its muzzle downwards are very objectionable, since the jolting tends to dislodge the charge. If it be considerably dislodged, the gun will probably burst on being fired. Also, a very little shaking, when the muzzle is downwards, will shake the powder out of the nipple, and, therefore, a gun, so carried, will constantly misfire. At night, to dispose of guns. A gun is a very awkward thing to dispose of at night. It has occurred more than once that a native servant has crept up, drawn away the gun of his sleeping master, and shot him dead. The following appears to me an excellent plan. When getting sleepy, you return your rifle between your legs, roll over, and go to sleep. Some people think this is a queer place for a rifle, but on the contrary, it is the position of all others where utility and comfort are most combined. The butt rests on the arm and serves as a pillow for the head. The muzzle points between the knees and the arms encircle the lock and breech, so that you have a smooth pillow and are always prepared to start up armed at a moment's notice. Parkins Abyssina The longer the gun, the more secure is the sleeper from accident. The sketch is not quite accurate, for, in practice, the weight of the gun is never allowed to rest so entirely on the arm, as it is here represented. If it do so, the arm would soon be numbed. The gun stock may be a little bolstered up if desired, to avoid any troublesome pressure on the arm. Cleaning Guns A bit of rags does as well as tow, and can be used over and over again. A top furnished with a sponge to screw to the cleaning rod is convenient. A leaded barrel must be cleaned with fine sand. Hawker, Quicksilver, if it be at hand, will dispose out the lead at once. End of chapter 25. Recording by Bobby Brill. www.englishnarration.com Chapter 26 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, 
please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bobby Brill. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 26. Gun Fittings and Ammunition. Powder Flask. The flask that is carried in the pocket may be small, if roomy, a large one, in reserve, being kept in a bag at the front of the saddle. To reduce bulges in a metal powder flask, fill it up with Indian corn or dry peas of any other sort of hard grain, then pour water into it and screw down the lid tightly. The grain will swell at first slowly and then very rapidly, and the flask will resume its former dimensions, or burst if it is not watched. Peas do not begin to swell for a couple of hours or more. Powder Horn To make Saw off the required length from an ox's horn. Flatten it somewhat by heat, see horn. Fit a wooden bottom into it, cock it well, and sew rawhide round the edge to keep all tight. The mount must be secured by a plug, which may be hollowed to make a charger. Pieces of cane of large diameter and old gunpowder canisters, sewn up in hide, make useful powder flasks. Percussion Caps Caps may be carried very conveniently by means of a ring, with two dozen nipple-shaped beads made of some metal strung upon it, each bead being intended to be covered by a percussion cap. The beads are cleft down the middle, which gives them a slight springiness that more effectively secures the cap that are placed upon them. The ring is tied by a thong to the belt or buttonhole. It is very difficult, without this contrivance, to keep caps free from sand, crumbs, and dirt yet always at hand when required. I can confidently recommend it, though as it is old-fashioned and not well suited for sportsmen in England, it is rarely to be met with. Spring cap holders are, I am sure, too delicate for rough travel. To protect caps from the rain. Before stalking or watching at night in rainy weather, wax or grease the edge of the cap as it rests on the nipple. It will thus become proof against water and damp air. Some persons carry a piece of grease with them when shooting in wet weather, and with it they smear the top of the nipple after each loading, before putting on the fresh cap. It is said that the grease does not prevent the full action of the cap upon the powder. A sportsman has recommended to me a couple of well-marked caps, into the heads of which small wads of cork have been fitted. He uses them for loaded guns that are to be laid by for some hours or days. A broad leaf wrapped loosely round the lock of a gun will protect it during a heavy shower. Substitute for Caps When the revolution in Spain in 1854 began, there was a great want of percussion caps. This the insurgents supplied by cutting off the heads of lucifer matches and sticking them into the nipples. The plan was found to answer perfectly. Times, July 31st. Gun Pricker I am indebted for the following plan, both for cleaning the touch hole and also for the rather awkward operation of pricking down fresh gunpowder into it, to an old sportsman in the Orkney Island of Sanday. He takes a quill and cuts off a broad ring from the large end of it. This is pushed over the small end of the quill and lies securely there. Next he cuts a wooden plug to fit the quill. Into the plug the pricker is fixed. The whole affair goes safely in the pocket the quill acting as a sheath to the sharp pricker. Now, when powder has to be pricked down the nipple, the broad ring is slipped off the quill and put on the nipple, which it fits. Powder is poured into it, and the required operation is easily completed. This little contrivance, which is so simple and light, 
lasts for months, and is perfectly effective. I have tried metal holders, but I much prefer the simple quill, on account of its elasticity and lightness. A little binding with waxed thread may be put on, as shown in the sketch, to prevent the quill from splitting. Wadding. The bush affords few materials from which wadding can be made. Some birds' nests are excellent for the purpose. I am told that a dry hide will not serve as materials for wads. Flints. According to the Ura's Dictionary, the best stones to choose for making gun flints are those that are not irregular in shape. They should have, when broken, a greasy luster, and be particularly smooth and fine-grained. The color is of no importance, but it should be uniform in the same lump, and the more transparent the stones, the better. Gun flints are made with a hammer and a chisel of steel that is not hardened. The stone is chipped by the hammer alone into pieces of the required thickness, which are fastened by being laid upon the fixed chisel and hammered against it. It takes nearly a minute for a practiced workman to make one gun flint. Gunpowder To carry gunpowder Wrap it up in flannel or leather, not in paper, cotton, or linen, because these will catch fire or smolder like tinder, whilst the former will do neither the one nor the other. Gunpowder carried in a goatskin bag travels very safely. Mr. Gregory carried his in the middle of his flower, each flower bag, see page 69, during his North Australian expedition, had a tin of gunpowder in the middle of it. To make gunpowder. It is difficult to make good gunpowder, but there is no skill to require in making powder that will shoot and kill. Many of the Negroes of Africa make it for themselves burning the charcoal, gathering saltpeter from salt pans, and buying the sulfur from trading caravans. They grind the materials on a stone. In Chinese Tartary and Tibet, every peasant manufactures it for himself. To make eight pounds of gunpowder, take one pound of charcoal, one pound of sulfur, and six pounds of saltpeter. These proportions should be followed as accurately as possible. Each of the three materials must be pounded into powder separately, and then all mixed together most thoroughly. The mixture must have a little water added to it, enough to make it bind into a stiff paste. About one-tenth part by measure of water is sufficient. That is to say, one capful of water to ten capfuls of the mixed powder. The paste must be well kneaded together, with one stone on another, just as travelers usually make meal or grind coffee. It should be then wrapped up to a piece of canvas or a skin and pressed, with a heavy pressure as can be obtained, to condense it. Next, the cake is squeezed and worked against a sieve made of parchment, in which the holes have been burnt with a red-hot wire and through which the cake is squeezed in grains. These grains are now put into a box which is well shaken about, and in this way the grains run each other smooth. The fine dust that is then found mixed with the grains must be winnowed away. Lastly, the grains are dried. Recapitulation 1. Pound the ingredients separately. 2. Mix them. 3. Add a little water and knead the mass. 4. Press it. 5. Rub the mass through a sieve. 6. Shake up the grains in a box. 7. Get rid of the dust. 8. Dry the grains.
The ingredients should be used as pure as they can be obtained. For making a few charges of coarse powder, the sieve may be dispensed with. In this case, roll the dough into long pieces of the thickness of a pin. Lay several of these side by side and mince the whole into small grains. Dust with powder to prevent their sticking together and then proceed as already described. To produce good charcoal. Light woods that give a porous charcoal are the best, as poplar, alder, lime, horse chestnut, willow, hazelnut, and elder. It should be made with the greatest care and used as soon as possible afterwards. It is the most important ingredient in gunpowder. Sulfur. The lumps must be melted over a gentle fire. The pot should be then put in a heap of hot sand to give the impurities time to settle before it cools into a mass. When this has taken place, the bottom part must be broken off and put aside as unfit for making gunpowder, and the top part alone used. Flour of sulfur is quite pure. Saltpeter. Dissolve the saltpeter that you wish to purify in an equal measure of boiling water, a cupful of one to a cupful of the other. Strain this solution and letting it cool gradually, somewhat less than three-fourths of the nitre will separate in regular crystals. Saltpeter exists in the ashes of many plants, of which tobacco is one. It is also found copiously on the ground in many places, in salt pans or simply as an efflorescence. Rubbish such as old mud huts and mortar generally abounds with it. It is made by the action of the air on the potash contained in the earths. The taste, which is that of gunpowder, is the best test of its presence. To extract it, pour hot water on the mass, then evaporate and purify as mentioned above. Rocket composition consists of gunpowder 16 parts by weight, charcoal 3 parts, or in other words of nitre 16 parts, charcoal 7 parts, sulfur 4 parts. It must not be forgotten that when rockets are charged with the composition, a hollow tube must be left down their middle. Blue fire. Four parts gunpowder meal, two parts nitre, three parts sulfur, three parts zinc. Bengal fire. Seven parts nitre, two parts sulfur, one part antimony. Bullets. Sportsmen, fresh from England and acknowledged as good shots at home, begin by shooting vilely with balls at large game. They must not be discouraged at what is a general rule, but be satisfied that they will soon do themselves justice. Alloy. Common bullets of lead, whether round or conical, are far inferior of those of hard alloy, for the latter penetrate much more deeply and break bones instead of flattening against them. A mixture of very little tin or pewter which is lead and tin, with lead hardens it. We read of sportsmen melting up their spoons and dishes for this purpose. A little quicksilver has the same effect. Sir Samuel Baker, who is one of the most experienced sportsmen, both in Ceylon and in Africa, laterally used a mixture of nine-tenths lead and one-tenth quicksilver for his bullets. He says, this is superior to all other mixtures for that purpose, as it combines hardness with extra weight. The lead must be melted in a pot by itself to a red heat, and the proportion of quicksilver must be added a ladleful at a time, 
and stirred quickly with a piece of iron just in sufficient quantity to make three or four bullets. If the quicksilver is subjected to red heat in the large lead pot, it will evaporate. Proper alloy or spelter had best be ordered at a gunmaker's shop and taken from England instead of lead. Different alloys of spelter vary considerably in their degree of hardness, and therefore more than one specimen should be tried. Shape of Bullets Round iron bullets are worthless, except at very close quarters, on account of the lightness of the metal, for the resistance of the air checks their force extremely. Whether elongated iron bullets would succeed remains to be tried. Some savages, as for instance those of Timor, when in want of bullets, use stones two or three inches long. Some good sportsmen insist on the advantage, for shooting at very close quarters of cleaving a conical bullet nearly down to its base, into four parts, these partly separate and make a fearful wound. I suppose that the bullet leaves the gun with the same force as it were entire, but that it traverses too short a distance for the altered form to tell seriously upon the speed. When it strikes, it acts like chain shot. Bullets to carry Bullets should be carried sewn up in their patches, for the convenience of loading, and they should not fit too tight. A few may be carried bare for the sake of rapid loading. Recovering Bullets When ammunition is scarce, make a practice of recovering the bullets that may have been shot into a beast. If they are of spelter, they will be found to have been very little knocked out of shape, and may often be used again without recasting. Shots and Slugs Travelers frequently omit to take enough shot, which is a great mistake, as birds are always to be found, while large game is uncertain. Besides this, shot gives amusement, and ducks, quails, and partridges are much better eating than antelopes and buffaloes. It must be borne in mind that a rifle will carry shot quite well enough on an emergency. Probably number seven is the most convenient size for shot, as the birds are likely to be tame, and also because a traveler can often fire into a convey or dense flight of birds, and the more pellets, the more execution. If birds are to be killed for stuffing, dust shot will also be wanted. Otherwise, it is undoubtedly better to take only one size of shot. Shot is made in manufactories, as follows. Arsenic is added to the lead in the proportion of from 3 pounds to 8 pounds of arsenic to 1,000 pounds of lead. The melted lead is poured through colanders drilled with very fine holes and drops many feet down into a tub of water. 100 feet fall is necessary for manufactories in which number 4 shot is made, 150 for larger sorts. If the shot turns out to be lens-shaped, there has been too much arsenic. If hollow, flattened, or tailed, there has been too little. Pewter or tin is bad, as it makes tailed shot. The shot are sorted by sieves. Bad shot are weeded out by letting the shot roll over a slightly inclined board, then the shot that are not quite rolled off to the side. Lastly, the shot is smoothed by being shaken up in a barrel with a little black lead. Slugs are wanted both for night shooting and also in case of a hostile attack. They can be made by running melted lead into reeds and chopping the reeds into short length or by casting the lead in tubes made of rolling paper round a smooth stick. Whether reeds or paper be used, 
they should be planted in the ground before the lead is poured in. The temperature of the lead is regulated by taking care that a small quantity of it remains unmelted in the ladle. At the moment of pouring out, if it be too hot, it will burn the paper. See lead. End of chapter 26. Recording by Bobby Brill, www.englishnarration.com. Chapter 27 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bobby Brill. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 27. Hints on Shooting. When Lying Down. Loading. Put in the powder as best you can, and ram the bullet home. Lying flat on your back, with the barrel of the gun athwart your breast. It is easy to load in this way with cartridges. On Horseback. Loading. Empty the charge of powder from the flask into the left hand and pour it down the gun. Then take a bullet, wet out of your mouth, and drop it into the barrel, using no ramrod. The wet will cake the bullet pretty firmly in its right place. Firing. In firing, do not bring the gun to your shoulder, but present it across the pommel of the saddle, calculating the angle with your eye and steadying yourself momentarily by standing in the stirrups as you take aim. Palliser. In each bound of the horse, the moment when the four legs strike the ground is one of comparative steadiness, and is therefore the proper instant for pulling the trigger. On water. Boat shooting. A landing net should be taken in the boat, as Colonel Hawker well advises, to pick up the dead birds as they float on the water while the boat passes quickly by them. Shooting over water. When shooting from a river bank without boat or dog, take a long light string with a stick tied to one end of it, the other being held in the hand. By throwing the stick beyond the floating bird, it can gradually be drawn in. The stick should be one and a half or two feet long, two inches in diameter, and notched at either end and attached to the hand line by a couple of strings, each six feet long, tied round either notch. Thus the handle line terminates in a triangle. See the figure I have given of a rude stirrup, the two sides of which are of string, with the stick for a base. A stout stick of this kind can be thrown to a great distance. Either it may be heaved, as a sailor's deep-sea lead, or it may be whirled around the head and then let fly. Night shooting. Tie a band of white paper round the muzzle of the gun, behind the sight. Mr. Anderson, who has had very great experience, ties the paper not round the smooth barrel, but over the sight and all, and if the sight does not happen to be a large one, he ties a piece of thick string round the barrel, or uses other similar contrivance to tilt up the fore-end of the paper. By this means, the paper is not entirely lost sight of at the moment when the aim is being taken. Mr. Anderson also pinches the paper into a ridge along the middle of the gun to ensure a more defined foresight. Nocturnal Animals There are a large number of night-feeding animals upon whose flesh a traveler might easily support himself, but of whose existence he would have few indications by daylight observation only. The following remarks of Professor Owen in respect to Australia are very suggestive. 
All the marsupial animals, and it is one of their curious peculiarities, are nocturnal. Even the kangaroo, which is the least so, is scarcely even seen feeding out on the plains in broad daylight. It prefers the early morning dawn or the short twilight, and, above all, the bright moonlight nights. With regard to most of the other Australian forms of marsupial animals, they are most strictly nocturnal, so that if a traveller were not aware of that peculiarity, he might fancy himself traversing a country destitute of the mammalian grade of animal life. If, however, after a weary day's journey he could be awakened, and were to look out about the moonlight glade or scrub, or if he were to set traps by night, he would probably be surprised to find how great a number of interesting forms of mammalian animals were to be met with in places where there was not the slightest appearance of them in the daytime. Batus. In Sweden, where hundreds of people are marshalled, each man has a number, and the number is chalked upon his hat. Scarecrows. A string with feathers tied to it at intervals, like the tail of a boy's kite, will scare most animals of the deer tribe by their fluttering, and, in want of a sufficient force of men, passes may be closed by this contrivance. The Swedes use lapar, viz. piece of canvas, of half the height of a man, painted in glaring colors, and left to flutter from a line. Mr. Lloyd tells us of a peasant who, when walking without a gun, saw a glutton up in a tree. He at once took off his hat and coat, and rigged out a scared crow. The counterpart of himself, which he fixed close by, for the purpose of frightening the beast from coming down. He then went leisurely home to fetch his gun. This notable expedient succeeded perfectly. Stalking Horses Artificial A stalking horse, or cow, is made by cutting out a piece of strong canvas into the shape of the animal, and painting it properly. Loops are sewn in different places, through which sticks are passed, to stretch the curves into shape. A stake planted in the ground serves as a buttress to support the apparatus. At a proper height there is a loophole to fire through. It packs up into a roll of canvas and a bundle of five or six sticks. Bushes are used much in the same way. Colonel Hawker made a contrivance upon wheels, which he pushed before him. The Esquimau shoot seals by pushing a white screen before them over the ice, on a sledge. Real both horses and oxen can be trained to shield a sportsman. They are said to enter into the spirit of the thing, and to show wonderful craft, walking round and round the object in narrowing circles, and stopping to graze unconcernedly, on witnessing the least sign of alarm. Oxen are taught to obey a touch on the horn. The common but cruel way of training them is to hammer and batter the horns for hours together, and on many days successively. Then they become inflamed at the root and are highly sensitive. Pan-hunting, used at salt licks. Pan-hunting is a method of hunting deer at night. An iron pan attached to a long stick, serving as a handle, is carried in the left hand over the left shoulder, near where the hand grasps the handle, in a small projecting stick, forming a fork on which to rest the rifle. When firing, the pan is filled with burning pine knots, which, being saturated with turpentine, shed a brilliant and constant light all around, shining into the eyes of any deer that may come in that direction, and making them look like two balls of fire. The effect is most curious to those unaccustomed to it. The distance between the eyes of the deer as he approaches 
appears gradually to increase, reminding one of the lamps of a traveling carriage. The rush of an enraged animal is far more easily avoided than is usually supposed. The way the Spanish bullfighters play with the bull is well known. Any man can avoid a mere headlong charge. Even the speed of a racer, which is undeniably far greater than any wild quadruped, does not exceed thirty miles an hour or four times the speed of a man. The speed of an ordinary horse is not more than twenty-four miles an hour. Now even the fastest wild beast is unable to catch an ordinary horse, except by crawling unobserved close to his side and springing upon him. Therefore I am convinced that the rush of no wild animal exceeds twenty-four miles an hour, or three times the speed of a man. See measurements of the rate of an animal's gallop. It is perfectly easy for a person who is cool to avoid an animal by dodging to one side or other of a bush. Few animals turn if the rush be unsuccessful. The buffalo is an exception. He regularly hunts a man and is therefore peculiarly dangerous. Unthinking persons talk of the fearful rapidity of a lion or tiger spring. It is not rapid at all. It is a slow movement, as must be evident from the following consideration. No wild animal can leap ten yards, and they all make a high trajectory in their leaps. Now think of the speed of a ball thrown, or rather pitched, with just sufficient force to be caught by a person ten yards off. It is a mere thing. The catcher can play with it as he likes. He has even time to turn after it, if thrown wide. But the speed of a springing animal is undeniably the same as that of a ball, thrown so as to make a flight of equal length and height in the air. The corollary to all this is that, if charged, you must keep cool and watchful, and your chance of escape is far greater than non-sportsmen would imagine. The blow of the free paw is far swifter than the bound. Dogs Kept at Bay a correspondent assures me that a dog flying at a man may be successfully repelled by means of a stout stick held horizontally, a hand at each end, and used to thrust the dog backwards over, by meeting him across the throat or breast. If followed by a blow on the nose, as the brute is falling, the result will be sooner attained. A watchdog usually desists from flying at a stranger when he seats himself quietly on the ground, like Ulysses. The dog then contents himself with barking and keeping guard until his master arrives. Hiding Game In hiding game from birds of prey, brush it over and they will seldom find it out. Birds cannot smell well, but they have keen eyes. The meat should be hung from an overhanging bow. Then, if the birds find it out, there will be no place for them to stand on and tear it, leaving a handkerchief or a short to flutter from a tree will scare animals of prey for a short time. See Scarecrows. Tying up your horse. You may tie your horse on a bare plane to the horns of an animal that you have shot while you are skinning him, but it is better to hobble the horse with a stirrup leather. See Shooting Horse. Division of Game. Some rules are necessary in these matters to avoid disputes, especially between whites and natives, and therefore the custom of the country must be attended to. But it is a very general and convenient rule, though like all fixed rules, often unfair, that the animal should belong to the man who first wounded him, however slight the wound might have been, but that he or they who actually killed the animal should have a right to a slice of the meat. 
It must, however, be understood that the man who gave the first wound should not thenceforward withdraw from the chase. If he does so, his claim is lost. In America, the skin belongs to the first shot. The carcass is divided equally among the whole party. Whaling crews are bound by similar customs, in which nice distinctions are made, and which have all the force of law. Duck shooting. Wooden ducks, ballast with lead and painted, may be used at night as decoy ducks, or the skins of birds already shot may be stuffed and employed for the same purpose. They should be anchored in the water, or made fast to a frame attached to the shooting punt, and dressed with sedge. It is convenient to sink a large barrel into the flat marsh or mud as a dry place to stand or sit in, when waiting for the birds to come. A lady suggests to me that if the sportsman took a bottle of hot water to put under his feet, it would be a great comfort to him, and in this I quite agree. I would take a keg of hot water when about it. If real ducks be used as decoy birds, the males should be tied in one place and the females in another, to induce them to quack. An artificial island may be made to attract ducks when there is no real one. Crocodile Shooting Mr. Gilby says, speaking of Egypt, I killed several crocodiles by digging pits on the sand islands and sleeping a part of the night in them. A dry shred of palm branch, the color of the sand, round the hole, formed a screen to put the gun through. Their flesh was most excellent eating, halfway between meat and fish. I had it several times. The difficulty of shooting them was that the falcons and spur-wing plovers would hover round the pit, when the crocodiles invariably took to the water. Their sight and hearing were good, but their scent indifferent. I generally got a shot or two at daybreak after sleeping in the pit. Tracks When the neighborhood of a drinking place is trodden down with tracks, describe a circle a little distance from it, to ascertain if it be much frequented. This is the manner in which spore should at all times be sought for. Cummings, Life in South Africa To know if a burrow be tenanted, go to work on the same principle. But if the ground be hard, sprinkle sand over it, in order to show the tracks more clearly. It is related in the Apocrypha that the prophet Daniel did this, when he wished to learn who it really was who every night consumed the meat which was placed before the idol of Bel and which the idol itself was supposed to eat. He thus discovered that the priests and their families had a secret door by which they entered the temple, and convinced the king of the matter by showing him their footprints. Carrying Game To carry small game as follow deer. Make a long slit with your knife between the back sinew and the bone of both of the hind legs. Cut a thick pole of wood and a stout wooden skewer eight inches long. Now thrust the right foreleg through the slit in the left hind one, and then the left foreleg through the slit in the right hind one, and holding these firmly in their places, push the skewer right through the left foreleg, so as to peg it from drawing back. Lastly, run the pole between the animal's legs and its body, and let two men carry it on their shoulders, one at each end of the pole, or if a beast of burden be at hand, the carcass is in a very convenient shape for being packed. In animals whose back sinew is not very prominent, it is best to cross the legs as above, and to lash them together. Always take the bowels out of game before carrying it. It is so much weight saved. I rode out accompanied by an after-rider, and shot two spring box, which we bore to camp secured on our horses behind our saddles, 
by passing the buckles of the girths on each side through the fore and hind legs of the antelopes, having first performed an incision between the bone and the sinews with the coteau de chasse according to colonial usage. Cummings, Life in South Africa After he skinned and gutted the animal, he cut away the flesh from the bones in one piece, without separating the limbs, so as to leave suspended from the tree merely the skeleton of the deer. This, it appeared, was the Turkish fashion in use upon long journeys, in order to relieve travellers from the useless burden of bones. Hux Tartari See also the section on heavy weights to raise and carry, especially Mr. Wyndham's plan. To float carcasses of game across a river. Sir S. Baker recommends stripping off the skin of the animal, as though it were intended to make a water-skin of it, putting a stone up the neck end of the skin, thus forming a water-tight sack, open at one end only. All the flesh is now to be cut off the bones and packed into the sack, which is then to be inflated and secured by tying up the opened end. The skin of a large antelope thus inflated will not only float the whole of the flesh, but will also support several swimmers. To carry ivory on pack animals, the North African traders use nets, slinging two large teeth on each side of an ass. Small teeth are wrapped up in skins and secured with rope. Mungo Park Setting a gun as a spring gun. General remarks. The string that goes across the pathway should be dark-colored, and so fine that if the beast struggles against it, it should break rather than cause injury to the gun. I must, however, add that in the numerous cases in which I have witnessed a herd of guns being set with success for large beasts of prey, I have never known of injury occurring to the gun. The height of the muzzle should be properly arranged with regard to the height of the expected animal. Thus, the heart of a hyena is the height of a man's knee above the ground that of a lion is a span higher. The string should not be tight, but hang in a bow, or the animal will cause the gun to go off on first touching the string, and will only receive a flesh wound across the front of the chest. First Method The annexed sketch explains the method I have described in previous editions of this book. The stock is firmly lashed to a tree, and the muzzle to a stake planted in the ground. A lever stick, eight inches long, is bound across the grip of the gun so as to stand upright, but it is not bound so tightly as to prevent a slight degree of movement. The bottom of the lever stick is tied to the trigger, and the top of it to a long, fine, dark-colored string, which is passed through the empty ramrod tubes and is fixed to a tree on the other side of the pathway. It is evident that when a beast breasts this string, the trigger of the gun will be pulled. Second Method I have, however, been subsequently informed of a better plan of adapting the lever-stick. It is shown in the accompanying diagram. The fault of the previous plan is the trouble of tying the string to the trigger, since the curvature is usually such as to make it a matter of some painstaking to fix it securely. A, B, C is the lever-stick. Notch it deeply at A, where it is to receive the trigger. Notch it also at B, half an inch from A, and at C five inches or so from B. In lashing B to the grip of the stock at D, the firmer you make the lashing, the better. If D admit of any yielding movement, on C being pulled, the gun will not go off, either readily or surely, as will easily be seen on making experiment. Third Method 
I am indebted to Captain J. Meaden for the following account of the plan used in Cylon for setting a spring gun for leopards. Remove the sear or tie up the trigger. Load the gun and secure it at the proper height from the ground. Opposite the muzzle of the gun, or at such distance to the right or left as may be required, fasten the end of a black string or line made of horsehair or fiber and pass it across the path to the gun. Fasten the other end to a stake long enough to stand higher than the hammer. Stick the end of the stake slightly in the ground, and let it rest upright against the lock projection, the back line being fastened nearly at that height. Pass round the small of the stock a loop of single or double string. Take a piece of stick six or eight inches long, pass through the loop, and twist tourniquet fashion until the loop is reduced to the required length. Raise the hammer carefully, and pass the short end of the lever stick from the inner to the outer side over the comb and let the long end of the lever rest against the stake the pressure of the hammer will keep the lever steady against the stake to prevent the lower end of the stake flying out from the pressure of the lever on the upper part place a log or stone against the foot an animal pushing against the black string draws the upper end of the stake towards the muzzle until the lever is disengaged and releases the hammer. In laying the long arm of the lever against the stake, sufficient play must be allowed for the contraction of the black string when wet by dew or rain. If a double gun is set, two stakes and two levers will be required, the stakes to be connected above and below the gun by cross sticks. The levers must be passed round the combs in opposite ways to allow for the long arms pressing outward from the gun and enable the levers to disengage without entangling. The carcass or live bait must be hedged round, and means adopted to guide the leopard across the string, by running out a short hedge on one side. In this case, the black line must be set taut, and some four inches from the line of fire. The breast then catches the string, and the push releases the hammer when the muzzle is in line with the chest. On this principle, two or more guns can be set, slightly varying in elevation, to allow of one barrel at least being effective. Bow and arrow set for beasts. The Chinese have some equivalent contrivance with bows and arrows. M. Huck tells us that a simply constructed machine is sold in the shops, by which when sprung, a number of poisoned arrows are fired off in succession. These machines are planted in caves of sepulture to guard them from pillage. They use spring guns and used to have spring bows in Sweden and in many other countries. Knives. Hunting knife. A great hunting knife is a useless encumbrance. No old sportsman or traveler cares to encumber himself with one. But a butcher's knife, carried in a sheath, is excellent, both from its efficient shape, the soft quality of the steel, its lightness, and the strong way in which the blade is set in the haft. Pocket knife. If a traveler wants a pocket knife full of all kinds of tools, he had best order a very light one of two and three quarter inches long in a tortoise shell handle without the usual turn screw at the end. It should have a light picker to shut over its back. This will act as a strike light and a file also, if its under surface be properly roughened. Underneath the picker there should be a small triangular borer for making holes in leather and a gimlet. The front of the knife should contain a long, narrow pen blade of soft steel, a cobbler's awl, slightly bent, and a packing needle with a large eye 
to push thongs and twine through holes in leather. Between the tortoise-shell part of the handle and the metal frame of the knife should be a space to contain three flat, thin pieces of steel, turning on the same pivot. The ends of these are to be ground to form turn screws of brass instruments. When this excellent contrivance is used, it must be opened out like the letter T, the foot of which represents the turn screw in use, and the horizontal part represents the other two turn screws, which serve as the handle. It may be thought advisable to add a button hook, a corkscrew, and a large blade, but that is not my recommendation, because it increases the size of the knife and makes it heavy. Now a heavy knife is apt to be laid by, and not to be at hand when wanted, while a light knife is a constant pocket companion. Sheath Knives to Carry They are easily carried by half-naked, pocketless savages. By attaching the sheaths to a leather loop, through which the left forearm and elbow are to be passed. A swimmer can easily carry a knife in this way, otherwise he holds it between his teeth. Substitutes for Knives Steel is no doubt vastly better than iron, but it is not essential for the ordinary purposes of life. Indeed, most ancient civilized nations had nothing better than iron. Any bit of good iron may be heated as hot as the campfire admits, hammered flat, lashed to a handle, and sharpened on a stone. A fragment of flint or obsidian may be made fast to a handle, to be used as a carpenter cuts paper with a chisel, namely by holding it dagger fashion and drawing it over the skin or flesh which he wishes to cut. Shells are sometimes employed as substitutes for knives, also thin strips of bamboo, the sharp edges of which cut meat easily. Night glass. Opera glasses are invaluable as night glasses for, by their aid, the sight of man is raised nearly to a par with that of night-roving animals. Therefore, a sportsman would find them of great service when watching for game at night. A small and inexpensive glass is as useful for this purpose as a large one, but there is a considerable difference between the clearness of different opera glasses. End of chapter 27 Recording by Bobby Brill www.englishnarration.com Chapter 28 of The Art of Travel This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton Chapter 28 other means of capturing game general remarks a trapper will never succeed unless he thoroughly enters into the habits of life and mind of wild animals he must ever bear in mind how suspicious they are how quickly their eye is caught by unusual traces and lastly how strong and enduring a taint is left by the human touch our own senses do not make us aware of what it is disagreeable enough to acknowledge that the whole species of man yields a powerful and wide-spreading emanation that is utterly disgusting and repulsive to every animal in its wild state it requires some experience to realize this fact a man must frequently have watched the heads of a herd of far distant animals tossed up in alarm the moment that they catch his wind he must have observed the tracks of animals how when they crossed his path of the preceding day the beast that made the tracks has stopped scrutinized and shunned it before he can believe what a yahoo he is among the brute creation. No cleanliness of the individual seems to diminish this remarkable odor. 
indeed the more civilized the man the more subtle does it appear to be the touch of a gamekeeper scares less than that of a master and the touch of a negro or bushman less than that of a traveller from europe if a novice thinks he will trap successfully by such artless endeavours as putting a bait on the plate of a trap that is covered over with moss or by digging a pitfall in the middle of a wild beast track he is utterly mistaken the bait should be thrown on the ground and the trap placed on the way to it then the animal's mind being fixed on the meat takes less heed of the footpath or a pitfall should be made near the main path this being subsequently stopped by boughs causes the animal to walk in the bushes and to tumble into the covered hole the slightest thing diverts an animal's step watch a wild beast path across a forest little twigs and tufts of grass will be seen to have changed its course and caused it to curve it is in trifles of this sort that the trapper should look for auxiliaries after setting traps mr st john recommends the use of a small branch of a tree first to smooth the ground and then having dipped it in water to sprinkle the place this entirely obliterates all footmarks springes general remarks harden the wood of which the mechanism has to be made by means of fire either baking it in hot sand or ashes or otherwise applying heat to a degree just short of charring its surface the mechanism will then retain the sharpness of its edges under a continuance of pressure and during many hours of wet weather the slighter the strain on the springe the more delicately can its mechanism be set nooses catgut which c makes better nooses than string because it is stiff enough to keep in shape when set brass wife that has been heated red-hot is excellent for it has no tendency whatever to twist and yet is perfectly pliable fish-hooks are sometimes attached to springes sometimes a tree is bent down and a strong cord is used for the noose by which large animals are strangled up in the air as leopards are in abyssinia a noose may be set in any place where there is a run it can be kept spread out by thin rushes or twigs set crosswise in it if the animal it is set for can gnaw a heavy stone should be loosely propped up which the animal in its struggles may set free and by the weight of which it may be hung up and strangled it is a very convenient plan for a traveller who has not time to look for runs to make little hedges across a creek or at right angles to a clump of trees and to set his snares in gaps left in these artificial hedges on the same principle artificial islands of piles and faggots are commonly made in lakes that are destitute of any real ones in order that they may become a resort of wild fowl javelins heavy poisoned javelins hung over elephant and hippopotamus pass and dropped on a catch being touched after the matter of a springe are used generally in africa they sometimes consist of a sharp little assegai or spike most thoroughly poisoned and stuck firmly into the end of a heavy block of thornwood about four feet long and five inches in diameter this formidable affair is suspended over the centre of a sea-cow path at about thirty feet from the ground by a bark cord which passes over a high branch of a tree and thence by a peg on one side of a path beneath gordon cumming trigger where a trigger has to release a strong spring an arrangement on the principle of a figure of four trap is i believe the most delicate the standard may be a branch or the stalk of a tree and the other pieces should be hardened by fire pitfalls very small pitfalls with sharpened stakes planted inside them that have been baked hard by the fire and well poisoned are easily to be set but they are very dangerous to man and beast 
in preparing a pitfall for animals of prey it is usual to ascertain whether they are deep enough by putting in a large dog if he cannot get out it is very unlikely that any wild beast can see trudeloo page three twelve pitfalls are often dug in great numbers near frequented watering places to which numerous intersecting paths lead by stopping up particular paths the pitfalls can be brought separately into use therefore those pitfalls need never be employed in which animals have been freshly killed and where the smell of blood would scare the game it is difficult to prevent the covers of pitfalls becoming hollow the only way is to build the roofs in somewhat of an arch so as to allow for subsidence if a herd of animals be driven over pitfalls some are sure to be pushed in as the crush makes it impossible for the beasts however wary to pick their way uganda thorn wreath captain grant found a very ingenious contrivance in use in uganda in africa two small stout hoops of equal diameter made of wood fully an inch in thickness were lashed one above the other long acacia thorns were interposed forming the spokes of a wheel of which the hoops formed the rim the bases of the thorns were nipped between the hoops and their points radiated towards the centre a great many thorns were used so that the appearance was that of a wheel without a nave whose spokes were so close together that they touched each other and as thorns taper from base to point the spokes touched one another along their whole length from circumference to centre this apparatus is always made with great neatness it is laid over a hole eighteen inches deep dug in the beast's path and the noose of a cord of which the other end is secured to a log is laid closely within the upper hoop when the beast treads on the apparatus he crashes through the thorns but on withdrawing his foot from the hole the wreath clings to his fetlock like a ruff and prevents the noose from slipping off thus there is time for the noose to become firmly jammed during the struggles of the beast of course the trapper artfully bushes the path so as to induce him to step full upon the trap he sets a great many of them and they require no looking after the diameter of the hoops is made proportionate to the size of the beast for which they are intended six inches interior diameter was the size used for buffalo and heart beast traps steel traps should never be tied fast or the captured animal may struggle loose or even gnaw off his leg it is best to cut small bushes and merely to secure the traps to their cut ends steel traps are of but little use to a traveller hawks are trapped by selecting a bare tree that stands in an open space its top is sawn off level and a trap is put upon it the bait is laid somewhere near on the ground the bird is sure to visit the pole either before or after he has fed poison savages frequently poison the water of drinking places and follow capture and eat the poisoned animals nux vomica or strychnine is a very dangerous poison to use but it affords the best means of ridding a neighborhood of noxious beasts and birds if employed to kill beasts put it in the belly if birds in the eye of the bait meat for killing beasts should be set after nightfall else the crows and other birds will be sure to find it and eat it up before the beasts have time to discover it it would be unsafe to eat an animal killed with strychnine on account of the deadliness of the poison the swedes put fulminating powder in a raw shank bone and throw it down to the wolves when one of these gnaws and crunches it it blows its head to atoms poisoned bullets i take the following extract from galignani's messenger a new method of catching whales is now being tried with considerable success science having contributed to its discovery our readers are well aware of the deadly effects of the indian poison called wurare or wurali 
concerning which we have often had occasion to record the most interesting experiments especially in mentioning the attempts made to use it as a specific for lockjaw its peculiar action consisting in relaxing the muscular system strychnine is a poison producing the contrary effect the excessive contraction of that system or in other words tetanus or lockjaw it is a curious fact that by the conjunction of these two agents so diametrically opposite in their effects a poison is obtained that will kill almost instantly if only administered in the dose of half a milligram per kilogram of the animal to be subjected to its action provided its weight do not exceed ten kilograms if larger the dose must be proportionally increased m thiercelin the inventor of this poison composes it by mixing a salt of strychnine with one twentieth of woorali to apply it to whale fishing he makes the compound up into cartridges of thirty grams an ounce each which is enough to kill an animal of sixty thousand kilograms weight each cartridge is embedded in the gunpowder contained in an explosive shell which is fired off on the whale in a late whaling voyage ten whales received such missiles and all died within from four to eighteen minutes after the infliction of the wound out of these ten whales six were cut up for their blubber and whalebone their remains were handled by careless men who frequently had scratches and sores on their skin and yet not one of them suffered the slightest injury a circumstance which shows that the poison cannot be transmitted from the fish to the men its poisonous action on the whale is however so great that practically the dose will have to be diminished so that the death of the creature may not be so sudden we should not forget to state that two out of the ten whales above mentioned were lost by one of the many accidents incident to whaling and that two others were of a kind that is not worth fishing for poisoned arrows arrows are most readily poisoned by steeping a thread in the juice and wrapping it round the barbs serpent's venom may also be used with effect bird lime can be made from the middle bark of most parasitic plants that is to say those that grow like mistletoe out of the boughs of other trees holly and young elder shoots also afford it the bark is boiled for seven or eight hours till quite soft and is then drained of its water and laid in heaps in pits dug in the ground where it is covered with stones and left for two or three weeks to ferment but less time is required if the weather be hot it is watered from time to time if necessary in this way it passes into a mucilaginous state and is then pounded into a paste washed in running water and kneaded till it is free from dirt and chips lastly it is left for four or five days in earthen vessels to ferment and purify itself when it becomes fit for use it ought to be greenish sour gluey stringy and sticky it becomes brittle when dry and may be powdered but on being wetted it becomes sticky again Yuri's dictionary vast flocks of birds frequent the scattered watering places of dry countries at nightfall and at daybreak by liming the sedges and bushes that grow about them numbers of birds could be caught crows may be killed by twisting up a piece of paper like an extinguisher dropping a piece of meat in it and smearing its sides with bird lime when the bird pokes its head in his eyes are gummed up and blinded and he towers upwards in the air whence he soon falls down exhausted and it may be dead with fright lloyd fish hooks baited with meat are good to catch these sorts of birds catching with the hand ducks we hear of hindus who taking advantage of the many gourds floating on their waters put one of them on their heads and wade in among wild ducks they pull them down one after another by their legs under water wring their necks and tie them to their girdle but in australia a swimmer binds grass and rushes or weeds round his head 
and takes a long fishing rod with a slip noose working over the pliant twig that forms the last joint of the rod when he comes near he gently raises the end and putting the noose over the head of the bird draws it under water to him he thus catches one after another and tucks the caught ones in his belt a windy day is generally chosen because the water is ruffled ire condors and vultures are caught by spreading a raw oxhide under which a man creeps with a piece of string in his hand while one or two other men are posted in ambush close by to give assistance at the proper moment when the bird flies down upon the bait his legs are seized by the man underneath the skin and are tied within it as in a bag all his flapping is then useless he cannot do mischief with his claws and he is easily overpowered bolas the bolas consists of three balls composed either of lead or stone two of them are heavy but the third is rather lighter they are fastened to long elastic strings made of twisted sinews and the ends of the strings are all tied together the indian holds the lightest of the three balls in his hand and swings the two others in a wide circle above his head then taking his aim at the distance of about fifteen to twenty paces he lets go the handball all the three balls whirl in a circle and twine round the object aimed at the aim is usually taken at the hind legs of the animals and the cords twisted round them they become firmly bound it requires great skill and long practice to throw the boas dexterously especially when on horseback a novice in the art incurs the risk of dangerously hurting either himself or his horse by not giving the balls a proper swing or by letting go the handball too soon shundis peru lasso it is useless that i should enter into details about making and wielding the lasso for it is impossible to become moderately adept in its use without months of instruction and practice hamstringing animals are hamstrung by riding at them armed with a sort of spear the blade of which is fixed at right angles to the shaft and has a cutting edge hawking is a disappointing pursuit owing to the frequent loss of hawks and can hardly be carried on except in a hawking country where the sportsman has a better chance than elsewhere both of recovering and replacing them it is impracticable except where the land is open and bare and it is quite a science there are some amateurs who will not hear a word of disparagement about their hawks but the decided impression that i bear away with me from all i have learnt is that the birds are rarely affectionate or intelligent End of chapter 28chapter twenty nine of the art of travel this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are on the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org recording by stephanie lee the art of travel by sir francis galton chapter twenty nine fishing fishing tackle fish hooks are made of iron not steel wire while the piece of wire is straight it is laid along a little groove in a block of wood and there barbed by the stroke of a chisel slantwise across it the other end is flattened by a tap of the hammer or roughened that it may be held by the whipping then the point is sharpened by a file and finished on a stone the proper curvature is next given and then the hook is case hardened see case hardening lastly the proper temper is given by heating the hook red-hot and quenching it in grease a traveller should always take a few hooks with him they should be of the very small and also of the middling sized sorts he might have a dozen of each sort whipped on to gut and at least a couple of casting lines with which to use them 
also several dozens of tinned iron fish-hooks of various sizes such as are used at sea and plenty of line fishing lines twisted sinews will make a fishing line to make a strong fine line unravel a good silk handkerchief and twist the threads into a whipcord see also substitutes for string gut is made from silkworms but the scrapings of the membrane in the manufacture of catgut see sinew thread make a fine strong and somewhat transparent thread twisted horsehair can almost always be obtained and boiling this in soap lees takes away its oiliness shoemaker's wax is made by boiling together common resin and any kind of soft grease which does not contain salt such as oil or butter a sixth or seventh part of pitch makes it more tough but it is not absolutely necessary for making the wax try if the quantity of grease is sufficient by dipping the stick with which the wax is stirred into water to cool it when the wax is supposed to be successfully made pour it into water then taking it out while yet soft pull it and stretch it with your wet hands as much as it will bear do this over and over again after dipping it in lukewarm water till it is quite tough wax is used of different degrees of hardness according as the weather is warm or cold reel if you have no reel make a couple of gimlet holes six inches apart in the butt of your rod at the place where the reel is usually clamped drive wooden pegs into these and wind your spare line round them as in figure one the pegs should not be quite square with a butt but should slope a little each away from the other that the line may be better retained on them a long line is conveniently wound on a square frame as shown in the annexed sketch figure two and a shorter line as in figure three if you have no equivalent for a reel and if your tackle is slight and the fish likely to be large provide yourself with a bladder or other float tie it to the line and cast the hole adrift trimmers are well known and are a convenient way of fishing the middle of a pool with only a short line anything will do for the float a bladder or a bottle is very good to recover a lost line make a drag of a small bushy tree with plenty of branches that are so lopped off as to leave spikes on the trunk this is to be weighted with a stone and dragged along the bottom otters what is called an otter is useful to a person on the shore of a wide river or lake which he has no other means of fishing it is very successful at first but soon scares the fish therefore it is better suited to a traveller than to an ordinary sportsman it is made as follows a board of light wood fourteen inches long and eight inches high or thereabouts is heavily weighted along its lower edge so as to float upright in the water a string like the belly band of a kite and for the same purpose is fastened to it and to this belly band the end of a line furnished with a dozen hooks at intervals is tied as a fisherman walks along the bank the otter runs away from him and carries his line and hooks far out into the stream it is very convenient to have a large hand reel to wind and unwind the line upon but a forked stick will do very well boat fishing in fishing with a long ground line and many hooks it is of importance to avoid entanglements make a box in which to coil the line and a great many deep saw cuts across the sides into which the thin short lines to which the hooks are whipped may be jammed fishermen who do not use oars but paddles tie a loop to their line they put their thumb through the loop and fish while they paddle to see things deep under water such as dead seals use a long box or tube with a piece of glass at the lower end this removes entirely the glare of the water and the effects of a rippled surface 
Mr. Campbell of Eastleigh suggests that a small glass window might be let into the bottom of the boat. Plate glass would be amply strong enough. See water spectacles. Nets. A small square net may be best turned to account by sinking it in holes and other parts of a river which fish frequent, throwing in bait to attract them over it, and then hauling up suddenly. The arrangement shown in the figure is very common. A sane net may be furnished with bladder for floats, or else with pieces of light wood charred to make them more buoyant. The hauling ropes may be made of bark steeped for three weeks, till the inner bark separates from the outer, when the latter is twisted into a rope, loid. Wherever small fish are swimming in shoals near the surface, there the water is sure to be rippled. Spearing fish The weapon used, sometimes called the grains, is identical with Neptune's or Britannia's trident. Only the prongs should be more numerous and be placed nearer together. In order to catch small fish, the length of the handle gives steadiness to the blow. In spearing by torchlight, a broad oval piece of bark is coated with wet mud, and in it a blazing fire is lighted. It is fixed on a stage, or it is held in the bow of the boat, so high as to be above the spearman's eyes. He can see everything by its light, especially if the water be not above four feet deep, and the bottom sandy. But there are not many kinds of wood that will burn with a sufficiently bright flame. The dry bark of some resinous tree is often used. If tarred rope can be obtained, it may simply be wound round a pole fixed in the bow of the boat and lighted. Fish can also be shot with a bow and a barbed arrow to which a string is attached. Intoxicating fish. Lime thrown into a pond will kill the fish, and the similar but far more energetic properties of Coculus indicus are well known. Throughout tropical Africa and South America, the natives catch fish by poisoning them. Dams are made which, when the river is very low, enclose deep pools of water with no current. Into these the poison is thrown it intoxicates the fish which float and are taken by the hand otters cormorants and dogs both otters and cormorants are trained to catch fish for their masters and dogs are trained by the patagonians to drive fish into the nets and to frighten them from breaking loose when the net is being hauled in cormorants in china fish during the winter from october to may working from ten a m to five p m at which hour their dinner is given to them when they fish a straw tie is put round their necks to keep them from swallowing the fish, but not so tight as to slip down and choke them. A boat takes out ten or twelve of these birds. They obey the voice. If they are disobedient, the water near them is struck with the back of the oar. As soon as one of them has caught a fish, he is called to the boat, and the oar is held out for him to step upon. It requires caution to train a cormorant, because the bird has a habit, when angry, of striking with its beak at its instructor's eye with an exceedingly rapid and sure stroke. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 of The Art of Travel This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton Chapter 30 Signals Column and Bolton's flashing signals, adopted in our army and navy, and used in many other countries as well, are eminently suited to the wants of an expedition. Anything may be used for signaling that appears and disappears, like a lantern or an opened and closed umbrella, or that moves as a waved flag or a person walking to and fro on the crest of a hill against the sky. 
sound also can be employed as long and short whistles their use can be thoroughly taught in two hours and however small the practice of the operators communication though slow is fairly accurate while in practiced hands its rapidity is astonishing the proportion of time occupied by the flashes and intervals is as follows i extract all the rest of the article from the pamphlet published by the inventors of the system flashing signals with flags supposing the short flash to be half a second in duration the long flash should be fully a second and a half the interval between the flashes forming a figure should be equal to a short flash and the interval between two figures should be equal to a long flash after the last figure of the signal is finished there should be a pause equal to at least one-third of the time taken up by the figures after this pause the signal should be again repeated with the same measured flashes and intervals and so continued until answered by all to whom it is addressed example dot 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 three dash six dot dash seven dot dot dash nine pause dot 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 three dash six dot dash seven dot dot dash nine pause dot 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 three dash six dot dash seven dot dot dash nine etc pause etc care must be taken never to commence a fresh signal before the answers to the last have ceased and signals are never to be answered until their repetitions have been observed a sufficient number of times to make an error impossible the signalman may work from left to right or from right to left as shown in figures one and two according to convenience and the direction of the wind to make a short flash the wave is flagged from a to b and back to the normal position a to make a long flash the flag is waved from a to c and back to the normal position a the numerals one to five are therefore denoted by one to five waves of the flag from a to b recovering to a the numeral six by a wave from a to c recovering to a the numeral seven by a wave from a to b back to a and then to c recovering to the normal position a the numeral eight is denoted by a wave from a to c back to a then to b recovering to the normal position a the numeral nine is denoted by two waves from a to b and one from a to c the numeral zero by one wave from a to c recovering again to a and then two waves from a to b the other signs are made in the same manner so that a short motion shall always represent a short flash and a long motion a long flash on the completion of the motions required for each sign the flag must always be brought to position a when the word or group of figures is completed the flag may be lowered in front of the body in receiving a message the flag should always be kept in the position a except when answering in waving the flag the point of the staff should be made to describe a figure of eight in the air to keep the flag clear each signal party must consist of not less than two men whose duties will be as follows in receiving messages number one works the flag for answering etc and refers to the code for the interpretation of the numbers received and calls out the words to number two number two fixes the telescope and reads from the distant station calling out the numbers as they are made for the information of number one and writes down the numbers and meaning thereof suppose station a in communication with station b number one at a on being told by number two that b is about to send a message takes up his position at attention holding the flag over the left arm and under the right or vice versa across his body according to the wind with the code-book in his hand 
Number two fixes his eyes on the glass, and on receiving the numbers from B calls them out to number one, who ascertains their meaning from the code and gives the words to number two, who writes them down in his book, and then, placing his eye to the glass, tells number one to make the answer. Number two does not, however, direct the answer to be made until he is sure of the correctness of the single received. Flashing alphabet for use without a code. The following alphabet, etc., can be used under circumstances when it is not convenient or possible to have recourse to the signal book, and forms in itself a perfect telegraphic system, necessarily somewhat slow in its application, but having the great advantage of requiring very little previous knowledge and practice to work with correctness. The symbols and numbers expressing the alphabet are identical with those forming the alphabet in the signal book. All particulars to the machines and lanterns used in the service for making these flashing signals and the code can be procured at W. Nunn & Company's Army and Navy Lamp and Signal Works, 65 George Street East, London, England. Reflecting the Sun with a Mirror To attract the notice of a division of your party five or even ten miles off, glitter a bit of looking-glass in the sun, throwing its flash towards where you expect them to be. It is quite astonishing at how great a distance the gleam of the glass will catch the sharp eyes of a bushman who has learned to know what it is. It is now a common signal in the North American prairies, Sullivan. It should be recollected that a passing flash has far less brilliancy than one that dwells for an appreciable time on the retina of the observer. Therefore, the signaler should do all he can to steady his aim. I find the steadiest way of holding the mirror is to rest the hand firmly against the forehead and to keep the eyes continually fixed upon the same distant object. The glare of the sun that is reflected from each point of the surface of a mirror forms a cone of light whose vertical angle is constant, and equal to that subtended by the sun. Hence, when a flash is sent to a distant place, the size of the mirror is of no appreciable importance in affecting the size of the area over which the flash is visible. That area is the section of the fasciculus of cones that proceed from each point of the mirror, which, in the case we have supposed, differs immaterially from the cone reflected from a single point. Hence, if a man watches the play of the flash from his mirror upon a very near object, it will appear to him of the shape and size of the mirror, but as he retreats from the object the edges of the flash become rounded, and very soon the flash appears a perfect circle, of precisely the same apparent diameter as the disk of the sun. It will, in short, look just like a very faint sun. The signaler has to cause this disk of light to cover the person whose notice he wishes to attract. I will proceed to show how he can do so, but in the meantime it will be evident that a pretty careful aim is requisite, or he will fail in his object. The steadiness of his aim must be just twice as accurate, neither more nor less, as would suffice to point a rifle at the sun, when it was sufficiently obscured by a cloud to bear being looked at, for the object of the aim is of the same apparent size, but a movement of a mirror causes the ray reflected from it to move through a double angle. The power of these sun signals is extraordinarily great. The result of several experiments that I made in England showed that the smallest mirror visible under atmospheric conditions such that the signaler's station was discernible, but dim, subtended an angle of only one-tenth of a second of a degree. It is very important that the mirror should be of truly plain and parallel glass, such as instrument-makers procure. The index glass of a full-size sextant is very suitable for this purpose. There is a loss of power when there is any imperfection in the glass. A plain mirror only three inches across reflects as much of the sun as a globe of 120 feet diameter. It looks like a dazzling star at ten miles' distance. To direct the flash of the mirror. There are makeshift ways of directing the flash of a mirror. 
as by observing its play on an object some paces off nearly in line with the station it is wished to communicate with in doing this two cautions are requisite first the distance of the object must be so large compared to the diameter of the mirror that the play of the flash shall appear truly circular and exactly like a faint sun see preceding paragraph secondly be careful to bring the eye to the very edge of the mirror there should be as little dispart as possible as artillerymen would say unless these cautions be attended to very strictly the flash will never be seen at the distant station an object in reality of a white color but apparently dark owing to its being shaded shows the play of a mirror's flash better than any other the play of a flash sent through an open window on the walls of a room can be seen at upwards of one hundred yards it is a good object by which to adjust my hand heliostat which i describe below two bits of paper and a couple of sticks arranged as in the drawing serve pretty well to direct a flash sight the distant object through the holes in the two bits of paper a and b at the ends of the horizontal stick and when you are satisfied that the stick is properly adjusted and quite steady take your mirror and throw the shadow of a upon b and further endeavor to throw the white speck in the shadow of a corresponding to its pinhole in it through the centre of the hole in b every now and then lay the mirror aside and bend down to see that a b continues to be properly adjusted hand heliostat some years ago i took great pains to contrive a convenient pocket instrument by which a traveller should be able to signal with the sun and direct his flash with certainty in whatever direction he desired i did so in the belief that a signalling power of extraordinary intensity could thus be made use of and i am glad to say i succeeded in my attempt i at last obtained a pretty pocket instrument the design of which i placed in the hands of messrs trotton and sims and upon the earlier models of which i read a paper before the british association in eighteen fifty eight i called it a hand heliostat i always carry one when i travel for it is a continual source of amusement the instrument is shown in figure one page two hundred and eighty and its principle is illustrated by figure two the scale is about two-thirds e is the eye of the signaller m the mirror and l s figure two a tube contained at one end l a lens and at the other s a screen of white porcelain or unpolished ivory placed at the exact solar focus of L. A shade, K, with two holes in it, is placed before L. Let capital R and small r be portions of a large pencil of parallel rays, proceeding from any one point on the sun's surface and reflected from the mirror, as R-bar, R-bar, figure 2. R-bar impinges upon the lens, L through one of the holes in K, and R-bar goes free toward some distant point, O. Those that impinge on the lens will be brought to a focus on S, where a bright speck of light might be seen. This speck radiates light in all directions. Some of the rays proceeding from it impinge on the lens at the other hole in the shade K, as shown in figure 2, and are reduced by its agency to parallelism with small R-bar and capital R-bar, that is, with the rays that originally left the mirror. Consequently, E, looking partly at the edge of the lens and partly into space, sees a bright speck of light in the former, coincident with the point o in the latter what is true for one point in the sun's disk is true for every point in it accordingly the signaller sees an image of the sun and not a mere speck of light in the lens and the part of the landscape which that image appears to overlay is precisely that part of it over which the flash from his mirror extends or in other words it is that from any point of which a distant spectator may see some part or other of the sun's disk reflected in the mirror 
There is no difficulty in signaling when the sun is far behind the back, if the eye-tubes are made to pull out to a total length of five inches, otherwise the shadow of the head interferes. For want of space, the drawing represents the tubes as only partly drawn out. The instrument is perfectly easy to manage, and letters can be signaled by flashes. Its power is perfectly marvelous. On a day so hazy that colors on the largest scale, such as green fields and white houses, are barely distinguishable at seven miles' distance, a looking-glass no larger than the fingernail transmits its signals clearly visible to the naked eye. I have made a makeshift arrangement on the principle of my heliostat, using the object-glass of an opera-glass for the lens and an ordinary-looking-glass. The great size and short focus of the object-glass is a great convenience when using a mirror with a wide frame. Professor W. H. Miller, the Foreign Secretary of the Royal Society, has since invented a yet more compact method of directing the flash, which he has described in the Proceedings of the Royal Society for 1865. It consists of a plate of silvered glass, one of whose rectangular corners is accurately ground and polished. On looking into the corner, when the glass is properly held, an image of the sun is seen which overlays the actual flash. Beautifully simple as this instrument is, I do not like it so much as my own, for the very fact of its requiring no setting is its drawback. With mine, when the image of the sun is lost, it is immediately found again by simply rotating the instrument on its axis, but with Professor Miller's the image must be felt for wholly anew. FIRE SIGNALS Fire beacons, hanging up a lantern, or setting fire to an old nest tie up in a tree, serve as night signals, but they are never to be depended on without previous concert, as bushes and undulations of the ground will often hide them entirely. The sparks from well-struck flint and steel can be seen for much more than a mile. Smoke signals. The smoke of fires is seen very far by day, and green wood and rotten wood make the most smoke. It is best to make two fires one hundred yards apart, lest your signaling should be mistaken for an ordinary fire in the bush. These double fires are a very common signal to vessels in the offing on the African coast. Other Signals By Sight A common signal for a distant scout is that he should ride or walk round and round in a circle from right to left, or else in one from left to right. Mr. Parkins, speaking of Abyssinia, describes the habits of a cast of robbers in the following words. At other times they will lie concealed near a road, with scouts in every direction on the lookout, yet no one venturing to speak, but only making known by signs what he may have to communicate to his companions or leaders. Thus he will point to his ear and foot on hearing footsteps, to his eyes on seeing persons approach, or to his tongue if voices be audible, and will also indicate on his fingers the numbers of those coming, describing also many particulars as to how many porters, beasts of burden or for riding, there may be with the party. A kite has been suggested as a day signal, and also a kite with some kind of squib, let off by a slow light and attached to its tail, as one by night. Colonel Jackson. Sound. Whistling through the fingers can be heard at considerable distances. The accomplishment should be learnt. Cooing in the Australian fashion, or yodeling in that of the Swiss, are both of them heard a long way. The united holloa of many voices is heard much further than separate cries. The cracking of a whip has a very penetrating sound smells. An abominable smell arrests the attention at night. Letters carried by animals. In short reconnoitering expeditions made by a small detachment from a party, the cattle or dogs are often wild, and run home to their comrades on the first opportunity. 
In the event of not being able to watch them, owing to accident or other cause, advantage may be taken of their restlessness by tying a note to one of their necks, and letting them go and serve as postmen, or rather, as carrier pigeons. End of chapter 30《a pocket compass should not be too small. If one of the little toy compasses be carried in the pocket, it should be as a reserve, and not for regular use. A toy compass will, of course, tell north from north-north-east and the like, and that may be very useful information, but the traveller will find that he constantly needs more precise directions. He doubts the identity of some hill, or the destination of some path, and finds on referring to his map, that the difference of bearing upon which he must base his conclusion is small. He therefore requires a good-sized compass to determine the bearing with certainty. One from one and a half to two inches in diameter is practically the best. It should have plenty of depth, so that the card may traverse freely, even when the instrument is inclined. It should be light in weight, that it may not be easily jarred by a blow. The catch that relieves the card, when the instrument is closed, should be self-acting and should act well. Lastly, the movement of the needle should be quick. One that makes slow oscillations should be peremptorily refused, whatever its other merits may be. The graduation of the degrees on the card should be from 0 degrees to 360 degrees, north being 0 degrees and east 90 degrees. I wish some optician would make aluminium cards. The material can be procured as foil, like tinfoil. It can then be stamped and embossed, in which case it retains its shape perfectly. But I cannot satisfy myself as to a good pattern, nor do I see how to make the north and south halves of the disc sufficiently different in appearance. Compass for use at night The great majority of compasses are well nigh useless in the dark, that is, when it is most important to be able to consult them. They are rarely so constructed that the difference between the north and south sides is visible by moonlight or by the light of a cigar or piece of tinder. The more modern contrivances are very effective. In these, the southern half of the compass card is painted black, the northern being left white. With a very faint light, this difference can be appreciated. In compasses consisting simply of a needle, the north end of the needle should have a conspicuous arrow head. It is extraordinary how much the power of seeing a compass or a watch at night is increased by looking nearly at it through a magnifying glass. Thus, young people who can focus their vision through a wide range may be observed poring with their eyes close to their books when the light wanes. So again, at night time, a placard, even in large type, is illegible at a short distance, but easily read on approaching it. It seems, in order that a faint image on the retina should be appreciated by the nerves of sight, that image must have considerable extent. Moonlight, or the light of a cigar, 
may be condensed on the compass by a burning glass or other substitute for it true and magnetic bearings the confusion between true and magnetic bearings is a continual trouble even to the most experienced travellers sir thomas mitchell's exploring party very nearly sustained a loss by mistaking the one for the other i recommend that the points of the compass viz north north northeast etc should be solely used for the traveller for his true bearings and the degrees as twenty five degrees or north twenty five degrees east for his magnetic there would then be no reason why the two nomenclatures should interfere with one another for a traveller's recollection of the lay of a country depends entirely upon true bearings or sunrise sunset and the stars and is expressed by north 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 east etc but his surveying data which find no place in his memory but are simply consigned to his notebook are necessarily registered in degrees to give every facility for carrying out this principle a round of paper should be pasted in the middle of the traveller's pocket compass card just large enough to hide the ordinary rums but leaving uncovered the degrees round its rim on this disc of paper the points of the compass true bearings should be marked so as to be as exact as possible for the country about to be visited errors in magnetic bearings the compass needle is often found to be disturbed and sometimes apparently bewitched when laid upon hilltops even when they consist of bare masses of granite the disturbance is easily accounted for by the hornblende in the granite or by other iron-bearing rocks explorers naturally select hills as their points of triangulation but compass observations on hilltops if unchecked by a sextant observation of the sun's bearings are never so reliable as those taken on a plain bearings by sun and stars it requires very great practice to steer well by stars for on an average they change their bearings even faster than they change their altitudes in tropical countries the zodiacal stars as orion and antares give excellent east and west points the great bear is useful when the north pole cannot be seen for you may calculate by the eye whereabout it would be in the heavens when the pointers were vertical or due north and the southern cross is available in precisely the same way the true north pole is about one and a half degrees or three diameters of the full moon apart from the pole star and its place is on a line between the pole star and the great bear an almanac calculated to show the bearing and the times of moonrise and moonset for the country to be travelled over as well as those of sunrise and sunset would be a very great convenience it would be worth while for a traveller accustomed to such calculations to make one for himself diagram the diagram is intended to be traced in lines of different colours when it will be found to be far less confused than at present its object is to enable a traveller to use the sun both as a rude watch and as a compass the diagram is calculated for the latitude of london but will do with more or less accuracy for the whole of england a traveller going to other countries may easily draw up one for himself and on a larger scale if he prefers it by using the azimuth tables and the horary tables of lynn the diagram represents first circles of equal altitudes 
secondly the path of sun stars etc for each tenth degree of declination thirdly the hour angles all projected down upon fourthly the level compass card thus six circles are drawn round the centre of the compass card at equal distances apart each ring between them representing a space of fifteen degrees in altitude the following angles were then calculated for each tenth degree of declination in turns viz the height of the sun etc when above the horizon at each point of the compass secondly the bearing of the sun at each consecutive hour these points were dotted out and by joining the several sets of them the drawing was made the broken lines which diverge in curves from p are hour lines those which surround p in more or less complete ovals are the paths of the sun and stars for each tenth degree of declination the prominent line running from east round to west being its path when on the equator the diagram when it is traced out for use should have the names of the months written in coloured ink on either side of the south line at places corresponding to the declination of the sun during those months viz january south twenty three degrees to south seventeen degrees february south seventeen degrees to south eight degrees march south seven degrees to north four degrees april north five degrees to north fifteen degrees may north fifteen degrees to north twenty two degrees june north twenty two degrees to north twenty three degrees july north twenty three degrees to north eighteen degrees august north eighteen degrees to north eight degrees september north eight degrees to south three degrees october south three degrees to south fourteen degrees november south fifteen degrees to south twenty two degrees december south twenty two degrees to south twenty three degrees to use the card draw a broad pencil line which may afterwards be rubbed out corresponding to the date of travel and there will be no further confusion then to know what o'clock it is span out roughly the altitude of the sun the point in the diagram where the altitude so obtained crosses the pencil mark corresponds to the position of the sun the hour is then read off and the compass bearings on the diagram are adjusted by holding it level and turning it round until a line drawn from its centre through the point in question points towards the sun as to the moon or a star if its declination be unknown but its bearing and altitude being given its declination and path may be found and therefore the time since its rising or before its setting a most useful piece of information to a traveller watches break and compasses cannot be used on horseback without stopping and therefore a diagram of this description of which any number of copies can be traced out may be of use for rough purposes other signs of direction bearings by the growth of trees in exposed situations and near the sea the growth of trees is rarely symmetrical they betray by their bent heads and stunted branches the direction of the prevalent influences most adverse to their growth this direction is constant over wide districts in a flat country but cannot be equally relied upon in a hilly one where the mountains and valleys affect the conditions of shade and shelter 
and deflect the course of the wind. Moss grows best where there is continuous damp, therefore it prefers that side of a tree which affords the most suitable combination of exposure to damp winds and shelter from the sun. When the winds do not differ material in dampness, the north side of the forest trees are the most thickly covered with moss. Bearings by the shape of ant hills. That most accurate observer, Pierre Huber, writes as follows concerning the nests of the yellow ants, which are abundantly to be found in the Swiss Alps and in some other mountainous countries. It must be recollected, in reading his statement, that the chief occupation of ants is to move their eggs and larvae from one part of the nest to another to ensure them a warm and equable temperature. Therefore, it is reasonable to expect that the nests of ants should be built on a uniform principle as regards their shape and aspect. Huber says, they serve as a compass to mountaineers when they are surrounded by thick mists or have lost their way during the night. They do so in the following manner. The ant hills of the yellow ants, which are by far more numerous and more high in the mountains than anywhere else, are longer than they are broad, and are of a similar pattern in other respects. Their direction is invariably from east to west. Their highest point and their steepest side are turned towards the point of sunrise in the winter-time, Olivant d'Hiver, and they descend with a gradual slope in the opposite direction. I have verified these experiences of the shepherds upon thousands of ant hills, and have found a very small number of exceptions. These occurred only in the case where the ant hills had been disturbed by men or animals. The ant hills do not maintain the constancy of their form in the lowlands, where they are more exposed to such accidents. Ripple marks on snow or sand. The Siberians travel guided by the ripples in the snow, which run in a pretty fixed direction, owing to the prevalence of a particular wind. The ripples in a desert of sand are equally good as guides or the wind itself, if it happens to be blowing, especially to a person pushing through a tangled belt of forest. Before leaving a well-known track, and striking out at night into the broad open plain, notice well which way the wind blows as regards the course you are about to pursue. Flight of Birds I have read somewhere that in the old days coasting sailors occasionally took pigeons with them, and when they had lost their bearings they let one fly which it did at once to the land. To follow a track at night. Where the track is well marked, showers of sparks, ably struck with a flint and steel, are sufficient to show it, without taking the pains of making a flame. Smell of an old track. The earth of an old and well-trodden road has a perceptible smell from the dung and trampling of animals passing over it, especially near to encampments. It is usual at night, when a guide doubts whether or no he is in the track, to take up handfuls of dirt and smell it. It is notorious that cattle can smell out a road. End of chapter 31。Chapter 32 of The Art of Travel This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Gobbleton. Chapter 32. Marks for the Wayside. Marks on Trees. Cutting Marks. A very excellent 
tree line is made by cutting deep notches in a line of trees starting from some conspicuous object, so that the notches will face the men that are to be guided by it. The trees must be so selected that three, or at least two of them, are in sight at once. The notch or sliced bark of a tree is called a blaze in bush language. These blaze trees are of much use as finger-posts on a dark night. They are best made by two persons, one chipping the trees on his right, the other those on his left. If the axes are quite sharp, they only need to be dropped against the tree in order to make the chip. Doing so hardly retards a person in his walking. Another way more suitable to some kinds of forests is to strike the knife into the left side of the tree to tear down a foot of bark and to leave the bark hanging, for a double extent of white surface is shown in this way. Also, to break down tops of saplings and leave them hanging, the undersides of the leaves being paler than the upper, and the different lines of the reversed foliage make a broken bush to look unnatural among health trees, and it quickly arrests the attention. If you want a tree to be well scored or slashed, so as to draw attention to it without fail, fire bullets into it, as into a mark, and let the natives cut them out in their own way, for the sake of the lead. They will affect your purpose admirably without suspecting it. Stamping Marks on Trees The keepers of some of the communal forests in Switzerland are provided with small axes, having the back of the axe-head worked into a large and sharp die, the impression of the die being some letter or cipher indicating the commune. When these foresters wish to mark a tree, they give it first a slice with the edge of the axe, and then, turning the axe, they deal it a heavy blow with the back of the axe-head. By the first operation they prepare a clean surface for their mark, and by the second they stamp their cipher deeply into the wood. Branding Trees Some explorers take branding irons and use them to mark each of their camping-places with its number. This is especially useful in Australian travel, where the country is monotonous and there are few natives to tell the names of places. Faggot hung to a tree. A bundle of grass or twigs about two feet long, slung by its middle athwart a small tree, at the level of the eye, by the side of a path, is well calculated to catch the attention. Its lines are so different to those seen elsewhere in the forest that it would be scarcely possible to overlook it boat or canoe routes through lakes well studded with islands can be well marked by trimming conspicuous trees until only a tuft of branches is left at the top this is called in the parlance of the far west a lobstick wooden crosses a simple structure like figure one is put together with a single nail or any kind of lashing it catches the attention immediately marks with stones Marks cut on stone. I have observed a very simple and conspicuous permanent mark used in forest roads, as represented in figure 2. The stone is eight inches above ground, three and a half wide, eight inches long. The mark is black and deeply cut. An arrowhead may be chiselled in the face of a rock and filled with melted lead. With a small, cold chisel, three inches long and a quarter inch wide, a great deal of stone carving may be readily effected. Piles of stone. Piles of stones are used by the Arabs in their deserts, and in most mountain tracks. Quote, An immense length of the road, both in the government of the Don Cossacks and in that of Tambov, is marked out on a gigantic scale by heaps of stones, 
varying from four to six feet high. These are visible from a great distance, and it is very striking to see the double row of them indicating the line of route over the great step, undulations which often present no other trace of the hand of man. End quote. Spottiswood. Gypsy Marks When gypsies travel, the party that goes in advance leaves marks at crossroads in order to guide those who follow. These marks are called patterns. There are three patterns in common use. One is to pluck three large handfuls of grass and to throw them on the ground, at a short distance from one another, in the direction taken. Another is to draw a cross on the ground with one arm much longer than the rest, as a pointer. A cross is better than any other simple mark, for it catches many different lights. In marking a road, do not be content with marking the dust. An hour's breeze or a shower will efface it. But take a tent-peg or sharpened stick and fairly break into the surface, and your mark will be surprisingly durable. The third of the gypsy patterns is of a special use in the dark. A cleft stick is planted by the roadside, close to the hedge, and in the cleft is an arm like a signpost. The gypsies feel for this at crossroads, searching for it on the left-hand side. Burrows Zinkali. A twig, stripped bare, with the exception of two or three leaves at its end, is sometimes laid on the road, with its bared end pointing forwards. Other similar marks of direction and locality, in use in various parts of the world, are as follows. Knotting twigs, breaking boughs and letting them dangle down, a bit of white paper in a cleft stick, spilling water or liquid of any kind on the pathway, a litter made of paper torn into small shreds, or of a stick cut into chips, or of feathers of a bird, a string with papers knotted to it like the tail of a boy's kite, tie a stone to the end of it and throw it high among the branches of a tree. Paint, whitewash, which see, when mixed with salt or grease or glue size, will stand the weather for a year or more. It can be painted on a tree or rock. The rougher the surface on which it is painted, the longer will some sign of it remain. Black for inscriptions is made by mixing lamp black, which see, with some kind of size, grease, wax, or tar. Dr. Kane, having no other material at hand, once burnt a large K with gunpowder on the side of a rock. It proved to be a durable and efficient mark. When letters are chiselled in a rock, they should be filled with black to make them more conspicuous. Blood leaves a mark of a dingy hue that remains long upon a light-coloured, absorbent surface, as upon the face of sandy rocks. End of chapter 32。Chapter 33 of The Art of Travel。This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 33 on finding the way. Recollection of a path. It is difficult to estimate, by recollection only, the true distances between different points in a road that has been once travelled over. There are many circumstances which may mislead, such as the accidental tedium of one part, or the pleasure of another. But besides these, there is always the fact that in a long day's journey, a man's faculties of observation are more fresh and active on starting 
than later in the day, when, from the effect of weariness, even peculiar objects will fail to arrest his attention. Now, as a man's recollection of an interval of time is, as we all know, mainly derived from the number of impressions that his memory has received while it was passing, it follows that, so far as this cause alone is concerned, the earlier part of his day's journey will always seem to have been disproportionately long compared to the latter. It is remarkable, on taking a long half-day's walk and subsequently returning, after resting some hours, how long a time the earlier part of the return journey seems to occupy, and how rapidly different well-remembered points seem to succeed each other, as the traveller draws homewards. In this case, the same cause acts in opposite directions in the two journeys. To walk in a straight line through forests. Every man who has had frequent occasion to find his way from one place to another in a forest can do so without straining his attention. Thus, in the account of Lord Milton's travels, we read of some North American Indians who were incapable of understanding the white man's difficulty in keeping a straight line. But no man who has not had practice can walk through trees in a straight line, even with the utmost circumspection. After making several experiments, I think the explanation of the difficulty and the way of overcoming it are as follows. If a man walks on a level surface, guided by a single conspicuous mark, he is almost sure not to travel towards it in a straight line. His muscular sense is not delicate enough to guard him from making small deviations. If, therefore, after walking some hundred yards towards a single mark, on ground that preserves his track, the traveller should turn round, he would probably be astonished to see how sinuous his course has been. However, if he take note of a second mark, and endeavour to keep it strictly in a line with the first, he will easily keep a perfectly straight course. But if he cannot find a second mark, it will not be difficult for him to use the tufts of grass, the stones, or the other accidents of the soil in its place. They need not be precisely in the same line with the mark, but some may be on the right and some on the left of it, in which case, as he walks on, the perspective of their change of position will be symmetrical. Lastly, if he has not even one definite mark, but is walking among a throng of forest trees, he may learn to depend wholly on the symmetry of the changes of perspective of the trees as a guide to his path. He will keep his point of sight unchanged, and will walk in its direction, and if he deviates from that direction, the want of symmetry in the change of perspective on either side of the point on which he wishes to walk will warn him of his error. The appreciation of this optical effect grows easily into a habit. When the more distant view happens to be shut out, the traveller must regain his line under guidance similar to that by which a sailor steers who only looks at his compass at intervals. I mean by the aspect of the sky, the direction of the wind, and the appearance of the forest, when it has any peculiarity of growth dependent on direction. The chance of his judgment being erroneous to a small extent is the same on the right hand as on the left. Consequently, his errors tend to compensate each other. I wish some scientific traveller would rigidly test the powers of good bushmen and find their probable angular deviation from the true course under different circumstances. Their line should be given to them, and they should be told to make smokes at intervals. The position of these smokes could be easily mapped out by the traveller. 
the art of walking in a straight line is possessed in an eminent degree by good ploughmen they always look ahead and let the plough take care of itself to find the way down a hillside if on arriving at the steep edge of a ridge you have to take the caravan down into the plain and it appears that a difficulty may arise in finding a good way for it descend first yourself as well as you can and seek for a road as you climb back again it is far more easy to succeed in doing this as you ascend than as you descend because when at the bottom of a hill its bold bluffs and precipices face you and you can at once see and avoid them whereas at the top these are precisely the parts that you overlook and cannot see blind paths faintly marked paths over grass blind paths are best seen from a distance lost in a fog napoleon when riding with his staff across a shallow arm of the gulf of suez was caught in a fog he utterly lost his way and found himself in danger he thereupon ordered his staff to ride from him in radiating lines in all directions and that such of them as should find the water to become more shallow should shout out mirage when it is excessive it is most bewildering a man will often mistake a tuft of grass or a tree or other most dissimilar object for his companion or his horse or game an old traveller is rarely deceived by mirage if he doubts he can in many cases adopt the following hint given by dr kane refraction will baffle a novice on the ice but we have learned to baffle refraction by sighting the suspected object with your rifle at rest you soon detect motion lost path if you fairly lose your way in the dark do not go on blundering hither and thither till you are exhausted but make as comfortable bivouac as you can and start at daybreak fresh on your search the bank of a watercourse which is the best of clues affords the worst of paths and is quite unfit to be followed at night the ground is always more broken in the neighbourhood of a river than far away from it and the vegetation is more tangled explorers travel most easily by keeping far away from the banks of streams because then they have fewer broad tributaries and deep ravines to cross if in the daytime you find that you have quite lost your way set systematically to work to find it at all event do not make the matter doubly perplexing by wandering further mark the place very distinctly where you discover yourself at fault that it may be the centre of your search be careful to ride in such places as will preserve your tracks break twigs if you are lost in a woodland if in the open country drag a stick to make a clear trail marks scratched on the ground to tell the hour and day that you pass by will guide a relieving party a great smoke is useful for the same purpose and is visible for a long distance a man who loses himself especially in a desert is sadly apt to find his presence of mind forsake him the sense of desolation is so strange and overpowering but he may console himself with the statistics of his chance of safety viz that travellers though constantly losing their party have hardly ever been known to perish unrelieved when the lost traveller is dead beat with fatigue let him exert a strong control over himself for if he gives way to terror and wanders wildly about hither and thither he will do no good 
and exhaust his vital powers much sooner. He should erect some signal, as conspicuous a one as he can, with something fluttering upon it, sit down in the shade, and, listening keenly for any sound of succour, bear his fate like a man. His ultimate safety is merely a question of time, for he is sure to be searched for, and, if he can keep alive for two or three days, he will, in all probability, be found and saved. Theory When you discover you are lost, ask yourself the following three questions. They comprise the ABC of the art of pathfinding, and I will therefore distinguish them by the letters A, B and C, respectively. A. What is the least distance that I can with certainty specify within which the caravan path, the river, or the seashore that I wish to regain lies? B. What is the direction, in a vague, general way, towards which the path or river runs, or the sea-coast tends? C. When I last left the path, did I turn to the left or to the right? As regards A, calculate coolly how long you have been riding or walking, and at what pace since you left your party. Subtract for stoppages and well-recollected zigzags. Allow a mile and a half per hour for the pace when you have been loitering on foot, and three and a half when you have been walking fast. Bear in mind that occasional running makes an almost inappreciable difference, and that a man is always much nearer to the lost path than he is inclined to fear. As regards B, if the man knows the course of the path to within eight points of the compass, or one-fourth of the whole horizon, it is a great gain. Or even if he knows B to within twelve points, say a hundred and twenty degrees, or one-third of the whole horizon, his knowledge is available. For instance, let us suppose a man's general idea of the run of the path to B that it goes in a northerly and southerly direction. Then, if he is also positive that the path does not deviate more than to the northeast on the one side of that direction, or to the northwest on the other, he knows the direction to within eight points. Similarly, he is sure to twelve points if his limits, on either hand, are east-northeast and west-northwest, respectively. C requires no further explanation. Now, if a man can answer all three questions, A, B, to within eight points of the compass, and C, he is four and a half times as well off as if he could only answer A, as will be seen by the following considerations. A knowledge of B, in addition to A, is of only one-third the use that it would be if C also were known. 1. Let P be the point where the traveller finds himself at fault, and let PD to be a distance within which the path certainly lies. Then the circle EDF somewhere cuts the path, and the traveller starting from P must first go to D, and then make the entire circuit DEHFD before he has exhausted his search. This distance of PD plus DEHFD equals PD plus 6PD nearly equals 7PD altogether which gives the length of road that the man must be prepared to travel over who can answer no other than the question A. Of course, PD may cut the path, but I am speaking of the extreme distance which the lost man may have to travel. Supposing that question B can be answered as well as question A, and that the direction of the line of road lies certainly within the points of the compass, 
PS and PR. Draw the circumscribing parallelogram GLHEM, whose sides are respectively parallel to PS and PR. Join LM. By the conditions of this problem, the path must somewhere cut the circle EDF, and since LM cuts LH, which is a tangent to it, it is clear it must cut every path, such as AA, parallel to LH or to PR, that cuts the circle. Similarly, the same line, LM, must cut every path parallel to PS, such as BB. Now, if LM cuts every path that is parallel to either of the extreme directions, PR or PS, it is obvious that it must also cut every path that is parallel to an intermediate direction, such as CC. But PL equals PH divided by cosine of HPL equals PD divided by cosine of one-half RPS. The consequence of which is that PL exceeds PD by one-sixth, one-half as much again, or twice as much again, according as RPS equals 60 degrees, 90 degrees, or 140 degrees. The traveller, who can only answer the questions A and B, but not C, must be prepared to travel from P to L and back again through P to M, a distance equal to 3PL. If, however, he can answer the question C, he knows at once whether to travel towards L or towards M, and he has no return journey to fear. At the worst, he has simply to travel the distance PL. The probable distance, as distinguished from the utmost possible distance that a man may have to travel in the three cases, can be calculated mathematically. It would be out of place here to give the working of the little problem, but I append the rough numerical results in a table. In the following, the words least distance mean the least distance that the traveller can specify with absolute confidence as that within which the path, etc., he wishes to regain is situated. Knows A alone. The extreme length of road it may be necessary to travel is seven times the least distance. The probable length of road it will be necessary to travel is two times the least distance. Knows A and B to within eight points, not C. The extreme length of road it may be necessary to travel is four and a half times the least distance. The probable length of road it will be necessary to travel is two and a quarter times the least distance. Knows A and B to within twelve points, not C. The extreme length of road it may be necessary to travel is seven and a half times the least distance. The probable length of road it will be necessary to travel is three and three quarter times the least distance. Knows A and C and B to within eight points. The extreme length of road it may be necessary to travel is one and a half times the least distance. The probable length of road it will be necessary to travel is three quarters of the least distance. Knows A and C and B to within twelve points. The extreme length of road it may be necessary to travel is two and a half times the least distance. The probable length of road it will be necessary to travel is one and a quarter times the least distance. Knows A and C and B to within thirteen points. The extreme length of road it may be necessary to travel is three and a half times the least distance. 
the probable length of road it will be necessary to travel is one and three-quarter times the least distance. The epitome of the whole is this. 1. If you can only answer the question A, you must seek for the lost path by the tedious circle plan, or, what is the same, and a more manageable way of setting to work, by travelling in an octagon, each side of which must be equal to four-fifths of PD. That is to say, look at your compass and start in any direction you please. We will say to the south, as represented in the drawing. Travel for a distance, PD. Then, supposing you have not crossed the path, turn at right angles and start afresh. We will suppose your present direction to be west. Travel for a distance four-tenths of PD, which will take you to one. Then turn to the northwest and travel for a distance eight-tenths of PD which will take you to two, then to the north for a similar distance, which will take you to three, and so on till the octagon has been completed. If you know B to eight points, and not C, adopt the LM system. Also, if you know A and C, and B to within thirteen points, out of the sixteen that form the semicircle, you may still adopt the LM system, but not otherwise. A rough diagram scratched on the ground with a stick would suffice to recall the above remarks to a traveller's recollection. End of chapter 33
if the ground sinks it has surely been recently disturbed best place for a cache the best position to choose for a cache is in a sandy or gravelly soil on account of its dryness and the facility of digging old burrows or the gigantic but abandoned hills of white ants may be thought of if the stores are enclosed in cases of painted tin also clefts in rocks some things can be conveniently buried under water the place must be chosen under circumstances that omit of your effacing all signs of the ground having been disturbed a good plan is to set up your tent and to dig a deep hole in the floor depositing what you have to bury wrapped in an oilcloth in an earthen jar or in a wooden vessel according to what you are able to get it must be secure against the attacks of the insects of the place avoid the use of skins for animals will smell and dig them out continue to inhabit the tent for at least a day while stamping and smoothing down the soil at leisure after this change the position of the tent shifting the tethering place or kraal of your cattle to where it stood they will speedily efface any marks that may be left travellers often make their fires over the holes where their stores are buried but natives are so accustomed to suspect fireplaces that this plan does not prove to be safe during summer travel in countries pestered with gnats a smoke fire for the horses that is a fire for keeping off flies made near the place will attract the horses and cause them to trample all about this is an excellent way of obliterating marks left about the cache hiding small things it is easy to make a small cache by bending down a young tree tying your bundle to the top and letting it spring up again a spruce tree gives excellent shelter to anything placed in its branches see also what is said on burying letters page 303 hiding large things large things as a wagon or boat must either be pushed into thick bushes or reeds and left to chance or they may be buried in a sand drift or in a sandy deposit by a river a small reedy island is a convenient place for such caches double caches some persons when they know that their intentions are suspected make two caches one with a few things buried in it and concealed with little care the other containing those that are really valuable and very artfully made thieves are sure to discover the first and are likely enough to omit a further search to find your store again you should have ascertained the distance and bearing by compass of the whole from some marked place as a tree about which you are sure not to be mistaken or from the centre of the place where your fire was made which is a mark that years will not entirely efface if there be anything in the ground itself to indicate the position of the hole you have made a clumsy cache it is not a bad plan after the things are buried and before the tent is removed to scratch a furrow a couple of inches deep and three or four feet long and picking up any bits of stick reeds or straw that may be found at hand lying upon the ground to place them end to end in it these will be easy enough to find again by making a cross furrow 
and when found will lead you straight above the depot they would never excite suspicion even if a native got hold of them for they would appear to have been dropped or blown on the ground by chance not seen and trampled in mr atkinson mentions an ingenious way by which the boundaries of valuable mining property are marked in the ural a modification of which might serve for indicating caches a trench is dug and filled with charcoal beets small and then covered over the charcoal lasts for ever and cannot be tampered with without leaving an unmistakable mark secreting jewels before going to a rich but imperfectly civilized country travellers sometimes bury jewels and bury them in their flesh they make a gash put the jewels in and allow the flesh to grow over them as it would over a bullet the operation is more sure to succeed if the jewels are put into a silver tube with round ends for silver does not irritate if the jewels are buried without the tube they must have no sharp edges the best place for burying them is in the left arm at the spot chosen for vaccination the traveller who was thus provided would always have a small capital to fall back upon though robbed of everything he wore a chain of gold is sometimes carried by arabs who sew it in dirty leather under their belt they cut off and sell a link at a time burton the gunstock is a good receptacle for small valuables unscrew the heel plate and bore recesses insert what you desire after wrapping it tightly in cloth and plugging it in then replace with the heel plate peel depositing letters to direct attention to the place of deposit when you make a cache in an inhabited land for the use of a travelling party who you are ignorant of your purpose there is of course some difficulty in ensuring that their attention should be directed to the place but that the natives should have no clue to it if you have means of gashing painting or burning characters something of this sort see figure they will explain themselves letter buried fifty yards n n e savages however take such pains to efface any mark they may find left by white men entertaining thoughts like those of morgania in the arabian nights tale of the forty thieves that it would be most imprudent to trust a single mark a relief party should therefore be provided with a branding iron and movable letters and with paints and they should mark the tree in many places a couple of hours spent doing this would leave more marks than the desultory efforts of roving savages would be likely to efface a good sign to show that europeans have visited a spot is a saw mark no savages use saws it catches the eye directly a system occasionally employed by arctic expeditions of making a cache ten feet true north and not magnetic north from the cairn or mark deserves to be generally employed at least with modifications let me therefore suggest that persons who find a cairn built of a tree marked so as to attract notice and who are searching blindly in all directions for further clue should invariably dig out and examine that particular spot 
the notice deposited there may consist of no more than a single sentence to indicate some distant point as the place where the longer letter is buried i hope it will be understood that the precaution of always burying a notice ten feet true north of the kine mark is proposed as additional to and not in the place of other contrivances for giving information there will often arise some doubt as to the exact point in the circumference of the kine or mark whence the ten feet measurement should be made this is due to the irregularity of the bases of all such marks therefore when searching for letters a short trench running to the north will frequently have to be dug and not a mere hole i should propose that the short notice be punched or pricked on a thin sheet of lead made by pouring two or three melted bullets on a flat stone and that the plate so made and inscribed should be rolled up and pushed into a hole bored or burnt through the head of a large tent peg the peg could be driven deeply in the ground quite out of sight without disturbing the surrounding earth it might even suffice to pick up a common stone and to scratch or paint upon it what you had to say and to leave it on the ground with its written face downwards at the place in question to secure buried letters from damp they may be wrapped in waxed cloth or paper if there be no fear of the ravages of insects lead plate is far more safe it can be made easily enough by a traveller out of his bullets see lead a glass bowl with something that insects cannot eat such as lead plate sealing wax or clay put carefully over the cork or an earthen jar may be used the quill of a large feather will hold a long letter if it is written in very small handwriting and on thin paper and it will preserve it from the wet after the letter has been rolled up and inserted in the quill the open end of the latter may be squeezed flat between two stones heated sufficiently to soften the quill see horn but not so hot as to burn it and then for greater security against wet the ends of the quill should be twisted tight wax affords another easy means of closing the quill picture writing a very many excellent bushrangers are unable to read rude picture writing is often used by them especially in america the figure of a man with a spear or bow drawn as a child would draw stands for a savage one with a hat or gun for a european horses oxen and sheep are equally to be drawn lines represent numbers and arrowheads direction even without more conventional symbols a vast deal may be expressed by rude picture writing reconnoitring barren countries by help of porters and caches the distance to which an explorer can attain in barren countries depends on the number of days provisions that he can carry with him half of his load supports him on his way out the other half on his way home but if he start in company with a laden porter he may reserve his own store and supply both himself and the porter from the pack carried by the latter when half of this is consumed the other half may be divided into two equal portions 
the one is retained by the porter who makes his way back to the camp consuming it as he goes and the other is cashed for the sustenance of the traveller on his return journey this being arranged the traveller can start from the cache with his own load of provisions untouched just as he would have started from the camp if he had had no porter to assist him it is evident a process of this description might be frequently repeated that a large party of porters might start and by a system of successive subdivisions they could enable the traveller to reach a position many days journey distant from his camp with his own load of provisions and with other food placed in a succession of caches for the supply of his wants all the way home again the principle by which this may be effected without waste is to send back at each successive step the smallest detachment content to travel alone and to do this as soon as one half of their load of food has been consumed by the whole party then the other half is to be divided into two portions one consisting of rations to supply the detachment back to the previous cache whence their journey home has been provided for the other portion to be buried to supply rations for the remainder of the party when they shall have returned either altogether or else in separate and successive detachments back to the previous cache whence their journey home has also been provided for an inspection of the table which i annex makes details unnecessary the dotted lines show how the porters who first return may be dispatched afresh as relief parties i give in the table a schedule of the three most important cases in these the regular supply of two meals per diem and a morning and an afternoon journey are supposed i wrote a paper on this subject in the royal geographical society's proceedings volume two to which i refer to those who care to inquire further into the matter causes where each man or horse carries a number of rations intermediate to those specified in the table are perhaps too complicated for use without much previous practice it would be easy for a leader to satisfy himself that he was making no mistake and to drill his men to any one of the tabulated cases by painting a row of sticks fifty yards apart to represent the successive halting places of his intended journey and by making his men go through a sham rehearsal of what they would severally have to do then each man's duties could be written down in a schedule and all possibility of mistake be avoided the table represents the proceedings of four men or horses and men who leave camp two turn back at p one one more turns back at p two and the remaining man pushes on to p three food has been cached for him both at p two and p one but to make matters doubly sure a relief party as shown by the dotted line can be sent to meet him at p two in case a each man carries one and a half days ration in case b each man or horse carries three and a half days rations for himself and drivers in case c each man or horse 
carries five and a half days rations for himself and drivers we will take the case c as an example the figures that refer to it are in the lines adjacent to the letter c in the table they are those in the uppermost line and also those in the line up the left hand side of the diagram and they stand for days journey and for days respectively p1 is reached after one and a half days travel p2 after three days p3 after six days from camp the entire party might consist of five men two carts one a very light one and four horses together with one saddle and bridle the heavier cart and two men and two horses would turn back at p1 one of the two horses of the second cart would be saddled and ridden back by a third man from p2 and finally the remaining cart single horse and two men would turn back after six days from p3 the relief party would originally consist of the first cart and three horses on arriving at p1 a horse and man would be sent back at p2 it would have more than enough spare rations to admit of its waiting two whole days for the exploring cart if were necessary to do so it will be seen from the table that as six days journey is the limit to which c can explore so four days journey is the limit for b and two days for a but where abundance of provision is secured at p2 by means of a relief party the explorers might well make an effort and travel on half rations to a greater distance than the limits here assigned End of chapter thirty four recording by elaine webb bristol england chapter thirty five of the art of travel this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by kate mackenzie the art of travel by sir francis galton chapter thirty five management of savages general remarks a frank joking but determined manner joined with an air of showing more confidence in the good faith of the natives than you really feel is the best it is observed that a sea captain generally succeeds in making an excellent impression on savages they thoroughly appreciate common sense truth and uprightness and are not half such fools as strangers usually account them if a savage does mischief look on him as you would on a kicking mule or a wild animal whose nature is to be unruly and vicious and keep your temper quite unruffled evade the mischief if you can if you cannot endure it and do not trouble yourself over much about your dignity or about retaliating on the man except it be on the grounds of expediency there are even times when any assumption of dignity becomes ludicrous and the traveller must as mungo park had once to do lay it down as a rule to make himself as useless and as insignificant as possible as the only means of recovering his liberty bush law it is impossible but that a traveller must often take the law into his own hands 
some countries no doubt are governed with a strong arm by a savage despot to whom or to whose subordinates appeals must of course be made but for the most part the system of life among savages is the simple rule the good old plan that they should take who have the power and they should keep who can where there is no civil law or any kind of substitute for it each man is as it were a nation in himself and then the traveller ought to be guided in his actions by the motives that influence nations whether to make war or to abstain from it rather than by the criminal code of civilised countries the traveller must settle in his own mind what his scale of punishments should be and it will be found a convenient principle that a culprit should be punished in proportion to the quantity of harm that he has done rather than according to the presumed wickedness of the offence thus if two men were caught one of whom had stolen an ox and the other a sheep it would be best to flog the first much more heavily than the second it is a measure of punishment more intelligible to savages than ours the principle of double or treble restitution to which they are well used is of the same nature if all theft be punished your administration will be a reign of terror for every savage even your best friends will pilfer little things from you whenever they have a good opportunity be very severe if any of your own party steal trifles from natives order double or treble restitution if the man does not know better and if he does a flogging besides and not in place of it seizing food on arriving at an encampment the natives commonly run away in fright if you are hungry or in serious need of anything that they have go boldly into their huts take just what you want and leave fully adequate payment it is absurd to be over-scrupulous in these cases feast days interrupt the monotony of travel by marked days on which you give extra tobacco and sugar to the servants avoid constant good feeding but rather have frequent slight fasts to ensure occasional good feasts and let those occasions when marked stages of your journey have been reached be great gala days recollect that a, a savage cannot endure the steady labour that we anglo-saxons have been bred to support his nature is adapted to alternations of laziness and of severe exertion promote merriment singing fiddling and so forth with all your power or to like as says in a winter's tale jog on jog on the foot-pathway merrily bent the stiles a merry heart goes all the day your satires in a miler flogging different tribes have very different customs in the matter of corporal punishment there are some who fancy it a disgrace and a serious insult a young traveller must therefore be discriminating and cautious in the license he allows to his stick or he may fall into sad trouble kindliness of women wherever you go you will find kind-heartedness amongst women mungo park is fond of recording his experiences of this but i must add that he seems to have been an especial favourite with the sex the gentler of the two sexes is a teterima causa belli when you wish a savage to keep count give him a string of beads 
the boxes and parcels that are sent by the overland route are or were counted in this way by an arab overseer he was described as having a cord with great beads strung on it and the end of the cord was thrown over his shoulder as each box passed him he jerked a bead from the forepart of the cord to the back part of it over his shoulder drawing lots it is often necessary to distribute things by lot do it by what children call soldiering one stands with his back to the rest's other pointing to the portions in succession calls out who is to have this to which the first one replies by naming somebody who at once takes possession end of chapter thirty five chapter thirty six of the art of travel this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org recording by stephanie lee the art of travel by sir francis galton chapter thirty six hostilities to fortify a camp forts at opposite corners explorers have frequent occasion to form a depot either a few men are left in charge of the heavy luggage while the rest of the party ride on in a distant reconnoitering expedition or else the whole party may encamp for weeks until the state of the season or other cause permits further travel in either case a little forethought and labor will vastly increase the security of the depot against hostile attempts for instance it should be placed at least two hundred yards from any cover or commanding heights if the ground on which it stands have any features of strength about it as being near the side of a stream or being on a hill so much the better the neighborhood of shingle prevents persons from stealing across unheard and finally the camp should be fortified now the principle of fortification best suited to a small party is to form the camp into a square to have two projecting enclosures at opposite corners where all the men who have guns may place themselves to fire on the assailants it will be seen by the sketch how completely the guns in each enclosure can sweep the edges as well as the whole of the environs of the camp a square is better than a round for the projecting enclosures as it allows more men to use their guns at the same time on the same point but it is so convenient to make the walls of the enclosure serve as sidings for the tents that it is perhaps best to allow the size and shape of the tent to determine those of the enclosures a square of nine or ten feet inside measurement is amply sufficient for three guns or archers the parapets can be built of large stones a traveling party rarely carries spades but when they have them the parapet may be formed of the earth thrown up by digging a trench outside it the common calculation is that with good tools a laborer can dig one cubic yard of earth an hour and can continue working for eight hours in the day the parapet should be raised four feet above the ground as that is the most convenient height to fire from when standing and it is high enough to shield a person kneeling down to load upon this parapet large stones should be laid having loopholes between them and above the stones the tent may be pitched its pole being lengthened by lashing a piece of wood to it or by cutting a fresh pole altogether it will make a high roof to the enclosure and will complete a comfortable abode we have thus a square enclosed camp for the cattle the wagons and the natives of the party and at opposite corners of it two fortified houses one of which would naturally be inhabited by the leaders of the party and the other either by the storekeeper or by the white servants generally true de loup are holes with sharp stakes driven in the bottom of each of them see pitfalls page two sixty four with the pointed end upwards 
the south sea islanders use them in multitudes to prevent the possibility of an enemy's approach at night otherwise than along the narrow paths that lead to their villages if a man deviates from a path he is sure to stumble into one of these contrivances and to be lamed holes need not exceed one foot in diameter and the stake may be a stick no thicker than the little finger and yet it will suffice to maim an ill-shot man if its point be baked hard a traveller could only use these pitfalls where from the circumstances of the case there was no risk of his own men cattle or dogs falling into them weapons to resist an attack unless your ammunition is so kept as to be accessible in the confusion of an attack the fortifications i have just described would be of little service if the guns are all or nearly all of the same bore it is simple enough to have small bags filled with cartridges and also papers with a dozen caps in each buckshot and slugs are better than bullets for the purposes of which we are speaking bows and arrows might render good service the chinese in their junks when they expect a piratical attack bring up baskets filled with stones from the ballast of the ship and put them on deck ready at hand they throw them with great force and precision the idea is not a bad one boiling water and hot sand if circumstances happen to permit their use are worth bearing in mind as they tell well in the bodies of naked assailants in close quarters thrusts do not strike and recollect that it is not the slightest use to hit a negro on the head with a stick as it is a fact that his skull endures a blow better than any other part of his person in picking out the chiefs do not select the men that are the most showily ornamented for they are not the chiefs but the biggest and the busiest a good horseman will find a powerful weapon at hand by unhitching his stirrup leather and attached stirrup from the saddle i know of a case where this idea saved the rider rockets of all european inventions nothing so impresses and terrifies savages as fireworks especially rockets i cannot account for the remarkable effect they produce but in every land it appears to be the same a rocket judiciously set up is very likely to frighten off an intended attack and save bloodshed if a traveller is supplied with any of these he should never make playthings of them but keep them for great emergencies natives forbidden to throng the camp have a standing rule that many natives should never be allowed to go inside your camp at the same time for it is everywhere a common practice among them to collect quietly in a friendly way and at a signal to rise en masse and overpower their hosts even when they profess to have left their arms behind do not be too confident they are often deposited close at hand captain sturt says that he has known australian savages to trail their spears between their toes as they lounge towards him through the grass professedly unarmed keeping watch head near the ground when you think you hear anything astir lie down and lay your ear on the ground to see to the best advantage take the same position you thus bring low objects in bold relief against the sky besides this in a woody country it is often easy to see far between the bare stems of the trees while their spreading tops shut out all objects more than a few yards off thus a dog or other small animal usually sees a man's legs long before he sees his face opera glass an opera glass is an excellent night glass and at least doubles the clearness of vision in the dark see page two eighty four ear trumpet I should be glad to hear that a fair trial had been also given by a traveller to an ear-trumpet. Watchfulness of Cattle Cattle keep guard very well. A stranger can hardly approach a herd of oxen without them finding him out, for several of them are always sure to be awake and watchful. The habits of bush life make a traveller, though otherwise sound asleep, 
start up directly at a very slight rustle of alarm among his cattle of wild birds and beasts scared birds and beasts often give useful warning smell of negro a skulking negro may sometimes be smelt out like a fox dahomen night watch the dahomens the famous military nation of northwest africa have an odd method of dividing their watches by night but which is generally managed very correctly at each gate of a stockaded town is posted a sentry who is provided with a pile of stones the exact number of which has been previously ascertained the night is divided into four watches during each watch the sentry removes a pile of stones one by one at a measured pace from one gate to another calling out at each tenth removal when all are removed the watch is relieved forbes setting a common gun as an alarm gun the gun may be loaded with bullet or simply with powder or only with a cap even the click of the hammer may suffice to awaken attention for the ways of setting it see page 257 prairie set on fire this is often done as a means of offense but when the grass is shorter lower than the knee the strip of it on fire at the same moment does not exceed twelve feet in width therefore if a belt of grass of twelve feet in width be destroyed in advance of the line of fire the conflagration will be arrested as soon as it reaches that belt the fire will be incapable of traversing the interval narrow though it be where there is a total absence of fuel to feed it travellers avail themselves of this fact in a very happy manner when a fire in the prairie is advancing towards them by burning a strip of grass to the windward of their camp of twelve feet in breadth beating down the blaze with their blankets wherever it would otherwise extend too widely behind this easily constructed line of defence the camp rests in security and the adjacent grass remains uninjured for the use of the cattle if however the wind is high and sparks are drifted from some distance beyond the belt of fire this method is insufficient two lines of defence should then be constructed tricks upon robbers it is perhaps just worth while to mention a trick that has been practised in most countries from england to peru a traveller is threatened by a robber with a gun and ordered to throw himself on the ground or he will be fired at the traveller taking a pistol from his belt shouts out if this were loaded you should not treat me thus and throws himself on the ground as a robber bids him there he lies till the robber in his triumph comes up for his booty when the intended victim takes a quick aim and shoots him dead the pistol being really loaded all the time i have also heard of an incident in the days of shooter's hill in england where a ruffian waylaid and sprang upon a traveller and holding a pistol to his breast summoned him for the contents of his pocket the traveller dived his hand into one of them and silently cocking a small pistol that lay in it shot the robber dead firing out to the side of the pocket passing through a hostile country how to encamp a small party has often occasion to try to steal through a belt of hostile country without being observed at such times it is a rule never to encamp until long after sundown in order that people on your track may be unable to pursue it with ease if you are pursuing a beaten path turn sharp out of it when you intend to encamp selecting a place for doing so where the ground is too hard to show footprints then travel away for a quarter of an hour at least lastly look out for a hollow place in the midst of an open flat never allow hammering of any kind in your camp nor loud talking but there is no danger in lighting a small fire if reasonable precautions be taken as a flame cannot be seen far through bushes keep a strict watch all night the watchers should be one hundred yards out from camp and should relieve one another every two hours at least enough animals for riding 
one for each man, should always be tied up in readiness for instant use. When Riding Alone A person who is riding a journey for his life sleeps most safely with his horse's head tied short up to his wrist. The horse, if he hears anything, tosses his head and jerks the rider's arm. The horse is a careful animal, and there appears to be little danger of his treading on his sleeping master. The Indians of South America habitually adopt this plan, when circumstances require extreme caution. See figure. To prevent your horse from neighing. If a troop of horsemen pass near your hiding place, it may be necessary to clutch your steed's muzzle with both hands to prevent his neighing. Hurried retreat of a party. When a party, partly of horsemen and partly of footmen, are running away from danger as hard as they can, the footmen lay hold of the stirrup leathers of the riders to assist them. See Litters for the Wounded, page 23. Securing Prisoners To take a strong man prisoner, single-handed, threaten him with your gun and compel him to throw all his arms away. Then, marching him before you some little distance, make him lie flat on his face and put his hands behind him. Of course he will be in a dreadful fright and require reassuring. Next, take your knife, put it between your teeth, and, standing over him, take the caps off your gun and lay it down by your side. Then handcuffed him, in whatever way you best can. The reason of setting to work in this way is that a quick supple savage, while you are fumbling with your strings, and bothered with a loaded gun, might easily spring round, seize hold of it, and quite turn the tables against you. But as the gun had no caps on, it would be of little use in his hands except as a club, and also, if you had a knife between your teeth, it would be impossible for him to free himself by struggling without exposing himself to a thrust from it. Cord to be well stretched. It is an imperfect security to tie an ingenious active man, whose hands and feet are small, unless the cord or whatever else you may use have been thoroughly well stretched. Many people have exhibited themselves for money, who allowed themselves to be tied hand and foot and then to be put into a sack, whence they emerged after a few minutes, with the cords in a neat coil in their hands. The brothers Davenport were notorious for possessing this skill. They did not show themselves for halfpence at country fairs, but, by implying that they were set free by supernatural agencies, they held fashionable seances in London and created an immense sensation a few years ago. Two of these exhibitors were tied, face to face in a cupboard, respectively by two persons selected by the audience. The latter inspected one another's knots as well as they could, and on their expressing themselves satisfied, the doors of the cupboard were closed, the lights of the room were kept low for five or ten minutes, until a signal was made by the exhibitors from within the cupboard. Then in a blaze of gaslight the doors were opened from within, and out walked the two men, leaving the ropes behind them. After this they tied themselves in their own knots, and under those easy conditions a number of so-called spiritual manifestations took place, which I need not here describe, the real curiosity of the exhibition being that which I have just explained. These exhibitions continued for months, but at length two nautical gentlemen insisted on using their own cord, which they had previously well stretched, and this proceedingly utterly baffled the Davenports. Thenceforth, wherever the Davenports showed themselves, the nautical gentlemen appeared also, appealing to the audience to elect them to tie the hands of the exhibitors. In this way they fairly exposed the pretensions of the Davenports and drove them from England. Once I was proposed by an audience to tie the hands. I did my best, and I also scrutinized my colleagues' knot, as well as the confined place in which the exhibitors were tied, permitted. The cord we had to use was perhaps a little too thick, but it was supple and strong, and I was greatly surprised at the ease with which the Davenports disembarrassed themselves. 
they were not more than ten minutes in getting free of course if either of the exhibitors could struggle loose he would assist his colleague it therefore struck me as an exceedingly ingenious idea of the davenports to have two persons and not one person to tie them i considered it was very improbable that a person taken at haphazard should be capable of tying his man securely and it was evident that the improbability would be increased in a duplicate ratio that both persons should be capable thus if it be twenty to one against any one person's having sufficient skill it is twenty by twenty or four hundred to one against both the persons who might be selected to tie the davenports being able to do so effectively as i have already said the opportunity that was afforded to each of scrutinizing the work of the other was worth very little because of the dark and confined space in which the exhibitors sat tying the hands to tie a man's hands behind his back take a handkerchief it is the best thing failing that a thin cord it is necessary that its length should not be less than two feet but two feet six inches is the right length for a double tie it should be three feet six inches compel him to lay his hands as in the sketch and wrapping the cord once or twice if it be long enough round the arms pretty tightly pass the longest end in between the arms as shown in the figure and tie quite tightly if you are quick in tying the common tom fool's knot well known to every sailor it is still better for the purpose but the prisoner's hands one within each loop then draw tightly the running ends and knot them together tying the thumbs to secure a prisoner with the least amount of string place his hands back to back behind him then tie the thumbs together and also the little fingers two bits of thin string each a foot long will thoroughly do this but if you have not any string at hand cut a thong from his leathern apron or tear a strip from your own linen straight waistcoats a straight waistcoat is the least inconvenient mode of confinement as the joints of the prisoner are not cut by cords a makeshift for one is soon stitched together by stitching a piece of canvas into the shape of a sleeve and sewing one end of this to one cuff of a strong jacket and the other end to the other cuff so that instead of the jacket having two sleeves it has but one long one the jacket is then put on in the usual way and buttoned and sewn in front in a proper straight waistcoat the opening is behind and the sleeves in front it laces up behind tying up a prisoner for the night if a man has to be kept prisoner all night it is not sufficient to tie his hands as he will be sure to watch his time and run away it is therefore necessary to tie them round a standing tree or a heavy log of wood a convenient plan is to fell a large forked bough and to make the man's arms fast round one of the branches it is thus impossible for him to slip away as a fork on one side and the bushy top of the branch on the other prevent his doing so and notwithstanding his cramped position it is quite possible for him to get sleep files of prisoners when several men have to be made fast and marched away the usual method of securing them is to tie them one behind another to a long pole or rope in marching off a culprit make him walk between two of your men while a third carrying a gun walks behind him if riding alone tie the prisoner's hands together and taking your off stirrup leather for want of a cord pass it round his left arm and round your horse's girth and buckle it the off stirrup leather is the least inconvenient one to part with on account of mounting and the prisoner is under your right hand tying on horseback in cases where a prisoner has to be secured and galloped off there are but two ways either putting him in the saddle and strapping his ankles together under the horse's belly in which case if he be mad with rage and attempts to throw himself off the saddle must turn with him or else securing him with mazeppa fashion 
when four loops are passed one round each leg of the horse and to each of these is tied one limb of the passenger as he lies with his back against that of the horse a surcingle is also passed round both horse and man it is of course a barbarous method but circumstances might arise when it would be of use proceedings in case of death if a man of the party dies write down a detailed account of the matter and have it attested by the others especially if accident be the cause of his death if a man be lost before you turn away and abandon him to his fate call the party formally together and ask them if they are satisfied that you have done all that was possible to save him and record their answers after death it is well to follow the custom at sea i e to sell by auction all the dead man's effects among his comrades deducting the money they fetch from the pay of the buyers to be handed over to his relatives on the return of the expedition the things will probably be sold at a much higher price than they would elsewhere fetch and the carriage of useless lumber is saved any trinkets he may have had should of course be sealed up and put aside and not included in the sale they should be collected in presence of the whole party a list made of them and the articles at once packed up in committing the body to the earth choose a well-marked situation dig a deep grave bush it with thorns and weight it well over with heavy stones as a defense against animals of prey End of chapter 36「37 of the art of travel this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the art of travel by sir francis galton chapter 37 mechanical appliances to raise and move a heavy body on land lever up its ends alternately and build underneath them when they are lifted up after a sufficient height has been gained build a sloping causeway down to the place to which the mass has to be moved and along which it may be dragged with the assistance of rollers and grease if the mass be too awkwardly shaped to admit of this burrow below it pass poles underneath it and raise the ends of the poles alternately Mr. Williams, the well-known missionary of the South Sea Islands, relates how his schooner, of from seventy to eighty tons, had been driven by a violent hurricane and rising of the sea on one of the islands near which she was anchored, and was lodged several hundred yards inland, and thus describes how he got her back. The method by which we contrived to raise the vessel was exceedingly simple and by it we were enabled to accomplish the task with great ease. Long levers were passed under her keel, with the fulcrum so fixed as to give them an elevation of about forty-five degrees. The ends of these were then fastened together with several cross-beams, upon which a quantity of stones were placed, the weight of which gradually elevated one end of the vessel until the levers reached the ground propping up the bow thus raised we shifted our levers to the stern which was in like manner elevated and by repeating this process three or four times we lifted her in one day entirely out of the hole which she had worked for herself and which was about four feet deep the bog that lay between her and the sea was then filled up with stones logs of wood were laid across it rollers were placed under the vessel the chain cable passed round her 
and by the united strength of about two thousand people she was compelled to take a short voyage upon the land before she floated in her pride on the sea in some cases the body of a cart may be taken down and deep ruts having been dug on each side of the mass the vehicle can be backed till the axle tree comes across it then after lashing and making fast the sand can be shoveled from below the mass which will hang suspended from the axle tree and may be carted away or the sledge may be built beneath the mass by bowing below it and thrusting the poles beneath it then the remainder of the intervening sand can be shoveled away and the mass now resting directly upon the sledge can be dragged away by a team of cattle a sarcophagus of immense weight was raised from out of a deep recess into which it had been fitted pretty closely at the end of a long narrow gallery in an egyptian tomb where there was no room for the application of tackle or other machinery by the simple expedient of slightly disturbing it in its place and sifting sand into the narrow interval between its sides and the recess this process was repeated continually the sand settled below the bottom of the sarcophagus which gradually rose out of the hole in which it had lain the principle of this piece of engineering was borrowed i suppose from observing that whenever a mass of sand and stones is shaken together the stones invariably rise out of the sand the biggest of them always forming the highest layer expansive power of wetted seeds admiral sir e belcher read a curious paper before the british association in eighteen sixty six showing the remarkable power to be obtained by filling tubes with peas or other seed allowing the weight to rest upon the surface of the peas through the medium of a rude piston when the peas were wetted they swelled upwards with considerable force a pint of peas placed in a tube of a diameter that was not expressed in the newspaper report from which i take this account lifted sixty pounds through a height of one inch in twenty-four hours the admiral proposed to fix a number of tubes side by side in a frame below the mass to be lifted preferring to use zinc tubes of from two or three inches in diameter and of about one foot high thus in the small space of a cubic foot a large number of tubes thirty-six in the one case sixteen in the other could be made to act simultaneously the force of the stroke could be increased by arranging a number of frames side by side or the length of the stroke could be increased by building the frames in a series one above the other i have elsewhere described how wetted seeds may be used to restore the shape of a battered flask either for holding water or gunpowder page two hundred and thirty parbuckling a round log or a barrel should be rolled not dragged and many irregularly shaped objects may have bundles of faggots lashed round them by which they become barrel shaped and fit to be rolled in these cases parbuckling doubles the ease of rolling them one or more ropes have one of each of their ends made fast in the direction to which the log has to be rolled while the other is carried underneath the log round it and back again by pulling at these free ends the log will be rolled on an equivalent plan and in some cases a more practicable one is to make fast one end of the rope to the log itself then winding the rope two or three times round it like cotton on a reel 
to haul at the free end as before. Horses can be used as well as men for this work. Accumulation of efforts. South American Indians are said to avail themselves of their forest trees and of the creepers which stretch from branch to branch in moving very heavy weights, as in lifting a log of timber up on a stage to be sawn in the following ingenious manner. The labourer gets hold of one of these creepers that runs from the top boughs of a tree in the direction in which he wants to move his log, and pulling this creeper home with all his force, bending down the bough, he attaches it to the log. Then he goes to another creeper and does the same with that, and so on until he has accumulated strain of many bent boughs, urging the log forward and of sufficient power to move it. Short cords of India rubber with a hook at either end, are sold under the name of accumulators. It is proposed that each of these should be stretched and hooked by one of its ends to a fixed ring, and by the other to the body to be moved. By applying a number of these in succession, an immense accumulation of force can be obtained. Levers A piece of green wood has insufficient strength to be used as a crowbar. It must first be seasoned. See green wood to season. Other means of raising weights. I do not propose to take space by describing jacks, ordinary pulleys, differential pulleys, Chinese windlasses and the like. It is sufficient that I should recall them by name to the traveller's recollection, for if he has access to any of these things, he is probably either a sailor or engineer and knows all about them or he is in a land where mechanical appliances are understood. To raise weight out of water. If the mass should lie below water, a boat may be brought over it and sunk to its gunwales. Then, after making fast to it, the boat can be bailed and the thing floated away. A raft weighted with stones will serve the same purpose. In some cases a raft may be built round the mass during low water. Then the returning tide, or the next flush of the stream, will float it away. Although from its bulk several men might be puzzled to lift a cowfish from the water when dead, yet one single Indian will stow the largest in his montaria without assistance. The boat is sunk under the body, and rising, the difficult feat is accomplished. Edwards Amazon The huge blocks of marble quarried at Carrara are shipped in the small vessels of the country as follows. At low water the vessel is buried bodily in the sand, and a temporary railway laid down from the quarry to within the side of it. Along this the blocks are conveyed, and when deposited in the vessel the sand is dug away from under them, and they settle down in its hold, and the ship floats away at the returning tide. End of chapter 37「Chapter 38 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate McKenzie. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 38. Knots. Elementary Knots. The three elementary knots which everyone should know are here represented, viz. the timber hitch, the bowline and the clove hitch timber hitch the virtues of the timber hitch are that so long as the strain upon it is kept up 
it will hold fast. When the strain is taken off, it can be cast loose immediately. A timber hitch had better have the loose end twisted more than once if the rope be stiff. Bowline. The bowline makes a knot difficult to undo. With it, the ends of two strings are tied together, or a loop made at the end of a single piece of string. For slip nooses, use the bowline to make the draw loop. When tying a bowline, or any other knot for temporary purposes, insert a stick into the knot before pulling tight. The stick will enable you, at will, to untie the knot, to break its back, as the sailors say, with little difficulty. A bowline is firmer if doubled, that is, if the free end of the cord be made to wrap round a second time. Clove hitch. The clove hitch binds with excessive force, and by it and it alone can a weight be hung to a perfectly smooth pole as to a tent pole. A kind of double clove hitch is generally used, but the simple one suffices and is more easily recollected. A double clove hitch is firmer than a single one, that is, the rope should make two turns instead of one turn round the pole beneath the lowest end of the cord. See tent poles to tie things to. Knots at end of rope. To make a large knot at the end of a piece of string to prevent it from pulling through a hole, turn the end of the string back upon itself so as to make it double, and then tie a common knot. The string may be quadrupled instead of doubled if required. Toggle and strop. This is a tourniquet. A single or a double band is made to enclose the two pieces of wood it is desired to lash together. Then a stick is pushed into the band and forcibly twisted round. The band should be of soft material, such as the strands of a rope that has been picked to pieces for that purpose. The strands must each of them be untwisted and well rubbed with a stick to take the kink out of them, and, finally, twisted in a direction opposite to their original one. To sling a jar, put it in a handkerchief or a net. To tie a parcel on the back like a knapsack, take a cord ten feet long, double it, and lay the loop end upon a rock or other convenient elevation. Then place the object to be carried upon the cord, taking care that the loop is so spread out as to admit of its ultimately enclosing the object with a good hold and balance. Next, pass the free ends of the cord over the object and through the loop. Then, bringing your shoulder to a level with the package, draw the free ends of the cords over your right shoulder. The cords will by this time have assumed the appearance shown in the sketch, which accompanies the printed edition of this book. Now, pass the left arm between the left hand cord and the package, and the right arm between the right hand cord and the package. Lastly, draw the cords tight, and the object will be found to be fastened onto your back like a knapsack. A gun may be passed between the cords and the top of the object. This is a capital method of carrying a load of game over a broken country, where at least one hand is required to be free. I am indebted to Mr. F. M. Wyndham for knowledge of it. He found it frequently in use in Norway. In hot countries the plan would not be so convenient, as the heat of a soft package strapped closely to the back is very oppressive. End of chapter 38
Chapter Thirty Nine of the Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter Thirty Nine. Writing Materials. Paper. Its numerous applications. Captain Gerard Osborne, in writing of the Japanese, says. It was wonderful to see the thousand useful as well as ornamental purposes to which paper was applicable in the hands of these industrious and tasteful people. Our papier-mâché manufacturers, as well as the continental ones, should go to Yedo to learn what can be done with paper. With the aid of lacquer varnish and skillful painting, paper made excellent trunks, tobacco bags, cigar cases, saddles, telescope cases, the frames of microscopes, and we even saw and used excellent waterproof coats made of simple paper which did keep out the rain and were as supple as the best mackintosh the inner walls of many a japanese apartment are formed of paper being nothing more than painted screens their windows are covered with a fine translucent description of the same material it enters largely into the manufacture of nearly everything in a japanese household and we saw what seems balls of twine which were nothing but long shreds of tough paper rolled up in short without paper all japan would come to a deadlock sizing paper the coarsest foreign paper can be sized so as to prevent its blotting when written on by simply dipping it in or brushing it well over with milk and water and letting it dry a tenth part of milk is amply sufficient messrs huck and gabbett inform us that this is the regular process of sizing as used by paper makers in tibet substitutes for paper are chips of wood inner bark of trees calico and other tissues lead plates and slatty stones i knew an eminent engineer who habitually jotted his pencil memoranda on the well-starched wristband of his left shirt-sleeve pushing back the cuff of his coat in order to expose it the natives in some parts of bengal when in the jungle write on any large smooth leaf with the broken off moist end of a leaf stalk or twig of any milky sap producing tree they then throw dust upon it which makes the writing legible if the leaf be so written upon the writing is imperceptible until the dust is sprinkled this plan might therefore be of use for concealed writing a person could write on the leaf without detaching it from the tree see sympathetic ink prepared paper for use with pencils of metallic lead see pencils is made by rubbing a paste of weak glue and bones burnt to whiteness and pounded on the surface of the paper waxed paper is an excellent substitute for tinfoil for excluding the air and damp from parcels it is made by spreading a sheet of writing paper on a hot plate of stone and smearing it with wax a hot flat iron is convenient for making it carbonized paper for tracing or for manifold writing is made by rubbing a mixture of soap lampblack and a little water on the paper and when dry wiping off as much as possible with the cloth tracing designs transparent tracing paper can hardly be made by a traveller unless he contents himself with the use of waxed paper but he may prick out the leading points of his map or other design and laying the map on a sheet of clean paper charcoal or other powder that will leave a stain can be rubbed through book binding 
travellers unbound books become so terribly dilapidated that i think it well to give a detailed description of a method of bookbinding which a relative of mine has adopted for many years with remarkable success and to a great extent the books are not tidy-looking but they open flat and never fall to pieces take a cup of paste a piece of calico or other cloth large enough to cover the back and sides of the book a strip of strong linen if you can get it if not of calico to cover the back an abundance of stout cotton or thread first paste the strip of linen down the back and leave the book in the sun or near a fire but not too near it to dry which it will do in half a day secondly open the book and look for the place where the stitching is to be seen down the middle of the pages or in other words for the middle of the sheets if it be an octavo book it will be at every sixteenth page if a duodecimo at every twenty-fourth page and so on it is a mere matter of semi-mechanical reckoning to know where each succeeding stitching is to be found in this volume the stitching is at pages two sixteen etc the interval being sixteen pages next take the cotton and wind it in between the pages where the stitching is and over the back round and round beginning with the first sheet and going on sheet after sheet until you have reached the last one thirdly lay the book on the table back upwards daub it thoroughly with paste put on the calico cover as neatly as you can and set it to dry as before when dry it is complete other materials for writing quills and other pens any feather that is large enough can be at once made into a good writing quill it has only to be dipped in hot sand which causes the membrane inside the quill to shrivel up and the outside membrane to split and peel off a few instants are sufficient to do this the proper temperature of the sand is about three hundred forty degrees the operation may be repeated with advantage two or three times reeds are in universal use throughout the east for writing with ink flat fish bones make decent pens pencil lead pencils were literally made of the metal lead in former days and there are some parts of the world as in arabia where they are still to be met with a piece of men may be cast into a serviceable shape in the method described under lead and will make a legible mark upon ordinary paper lead is the best material for writing in notebooks of prepared paper which see a better sort of pencil for general use is made by sawing charcoal into narrow strips and laying them in melted wax to drench for a couple of days they are then ready for use paint brushes wash the bit of tail or skin whence the hair is to be taken in ox gall till it is quite free from grease then snip off the hairs close to the skin put them points downward resting in a box and pick out the long hairs after a sufficient quantity have been obtained of about the same length a piece of string is knotted tightly round them and pulled firm with the aid of two sticks then a quill that has been soaked in water for a day in order to soften it is taken and the pinch of hair is put into the large end of the quill points forward and pushed right through to the other end with a bit of stick and so the brush is made the chinese paintbrush is a feather a woodcock's feather is often used feather like hairs must be washed in ox gall ink excellent writing ink may be made in the bush the readiest way of making it is to blacken sticks in the fire and to rub them well in a spoonful of milk till the milk becomes quite black gunpowder or lamp soot will do as well as the burnt stick and water with the addition of a very little gum glue or fish glue isinglass is better than the milk as it will not so soon turn sour indian ink is simply lamp soot and some kind of glue 
it is one of the best of inks if pure water be used instead of gum or glue and water the writing will rub out very easily when dry the use of the milk gum or glue being to fix it anything else that is glutinous will serve as well as these strong coffee and many other vegetable products such as the bark of trees boiled in water make a mark which is very legible and will not rub blood is an indifferent substitute for ink to make twelve gallons of good common writing ink use twelve pounds of nut galls five pounds of green sulphate of iron five pounds of gum and twelve gallons of water ure lamp black hold a piece of metal or even a stone over a flaring wick in a cup of oil and plenty of soot will collect sympathetic ink nothing is better or handier than milk the writing is invisible until the paper is almost toasted in the fire when it turns a rich brown the juice of lemons and many other fruits may also be used see substitutes for paper gall of animals or ox gall to purify to make ink or paint take upon greasy paper a very little ox gall should be mixed with it it is very important to know the simple remedy and i therefore extract the following information from Ure's dictionary i have often practised it take it from the newly killed animal let it settle for twelve or fifteen hours in a basin pour the liquid off the sediment into an earthenware pot and set the pot into a pan of water kept boiling until the gall liquid becomes somewhat thick then spread it on a dish and place it before the fire till nearly dry in this state it may be kept without any looking after for years when wanted a piece of the size of a pea should be dissolved in water ox gall removes all grease spots from clothes etc wafers paste and gum wafers the common wafers are punched out of a sheet made of a paste of flour and water that has suddenly been baked hard gum wafers are punched out of a sheet made of thick gum and water poured on a slightly greased surface a looking-glass for example another greased glass having been put on the top of the gum to make it dry even paste should be made like arrowroot by mixing the flour in a minimum of cold water and then pouring a flush of absolutely boiling water upon it it is made a trifle thicker and more secure from insects by the addition of alum corrosive sublimate is a more powerful protection against insects but is by no means an absolute safeguard and it is dangerous to use gum the white of eggs forms a substitute for gum some seaweeds yield gum see also glue isinglass and sealing wax varnish signets many excellent and worthy bushmen have the misfortune of not knowing how to write should any such be placed in a post of confidence by an explorer it might be well that he should cut for himself a signet out of soft stone such as the europeans of bygone generations and the turks of the last one very generally employed a device is cut on the seal before using it the paper is moistened with a wet finger and the ink is dabbled over the ring with another the impression is then made using the ball of the thumb for a pad sealing wax varnish black or red sealing wax dissolved in spirits of wine makes a very effective stiff and waterproof varnish especially for boxes of paper or cardboard it might be useful in keeping some iron things from rust it is the same material that is used to cover toy magnets when made stiff it is an excellent cement for small articles opticians employ it for many of these purposes i have also used it as a paint for marking initials on luggage cutting out the letters in paper and dabbing the red stuff through small boxes for specimens cut the side of a cigar box 
or a strip of pasteboard half through in three places add two smaller pieces like wings one on each side by means of a piece of gummed paper overlapping them as in the picture any number of these may be carried like the leaves of a book and when a book is wanted they may be bent into shape and by the adherence of the moistened gum paper can be made into a box at a moment's notice the shaded border of the figure represents the gummed paper quills make convenient receptacles for minute specimens they should be dressed see quills and may be corked with a plug of wood or wax or for greater security a small quill may be pushed mouth forward into a larger one as into a sheath end of section thirty nine Chapter Forty of the Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter Forty. Timber. Greenwood. To season wood. Greenwood cannot be employed in carpentry, as it is very weak it also warps cracks and becomes rotten wood dried with too great a heat loses its toughness as well as its pliability becomes hard and brittle green wood is seasoned by washing out the sap and then drying it thoroughly the traveller's way of doing this by one rapid operation is to dig a long trench and make a roaring fire in it when the ground is burning hot sweep the ashes away deluge the trench with boiling water and in the middle of the clouds of steam that arise throw in the log of wood shovel hot earth over it and leave it to steam and bake a log thick enough to make an axle tree may thus be somewhat seasoned in a single night the log would be seasoned more thoroughly if it were saturated with boiling water before putting it into the trench that can be done by laying it in a deep narrow puddle and shoveling hot stones into the water all crowbars wagon lifters etc should be roughly seasoned as green wood is far too weak for such uses the regular way of seasoning is to leave the timber to soak for a long time in water that the juices may be washed out fresh water is better for this purpose than salt but a mineral spring if it is warm is better than cold fresh water parties travelling with a wagon ought to fell a little timber on their outward journey and leave it to season against their return in readiness to replace strained axle trees broken poles and the like they might at all events cut a ring round through the bark and sapwood of the tree and leave it to discharge its juices die and become half seasoned as it stands to bend wood if it is wished to bend a rod of wood or to straighten it if originally crooked it must be steamed or at least be submitted to hot water thus a rod of green wood may be passed through the ashes of a smouldering fire and when hot bent and shaped with the hand but if the wood be dry it must be first thoroughly soaked in a pond or puddle if the puddle is made to boil by shoveling in hot stones as described in the last paragraph the stick will bend more easily the long straight spears of savages are often made of exceedingly crooked sticks straightened in the ashes of their campfires a thick piece of wood may be well swabbed with hot water forcibly bent as far as can be safely done tied in position and steamed as if for the purpose of seasoning see last paragraph in a trench after a quarter of an hour it must be taken out damped afresh if necessary bent further and again returned to steam the process being repeated till the wood has attained the shape required it should then be left in the trench to season thoroughly the heads of dog sledges and the pieces of wood used for the outsides of snowshoes are all bent by this process carpenter's tools 
tools of too hard steel should not be taken on a journey they splinter against the dense wood of tropical countries and they are very troublesome to sharpen the remedy for overhardness is to heat them red-hot retempering them by quenching in grease a small iron axe with a file to sharpen it and a few awls are if nothing else can be taken a very useful outfit as much carpentry as a traveller is likely to want can be effected by means of a small axe with a hammerhead a very small single-handed adze a mortise chisel a strong gouge a couple of medium-sized gimlets a few awls a small turkey hone and a whetstone if a saw be taken it should be of a sort intended for green wood in addition to these a small tin box full of tools all of which fit into a single handle is very valuable many travellers have found them extremely convenient there is a tool shop near the bottom of the haymarket and another in the strand near the lothier arcade where they can be bought probably also a hotsafuls in trafalgar square the box that contains them is about six inches long by four broad and one deep the cost is from twenty shillings to thirty shillings lastly a saw for metals a few drills and small files may be added with advantage it is advisable to see that the tools are ground and set before starting a small hard chisel of the best steel three inches long a quarter of an inch wide and three-eighths thick which any blacksmith can make will cut iron will chisel marks on rocks and be useful in numerous emergencies sharpening tools a man will get through most work with his tools if he stops from time to time to sharpen them up the son of sirach says speaking of a carpenter if the iron be blunt and he do not wet the edge then must he put to more strength but wisdom is profitable to direct ecclesiasticus a small fine file is very effectual in giving an edge to tools of soft steel it is a common error to suppose that the best edge is given by grinding the sides of the tool until they meet at an exceedingly acute angle such an edge would have no strength and would chip or bend directly the proper way of sharpening a tool is to grind it until it is sufficiently thin and then to give it an edge whose sides are inclined to one another about as much as those of the letter v the edge of a chisel is an obvious case in point so also is the edge of a butcher's knife which is given by applying it to the steel at a considerable inclination a razor has only to cut hairs and will splinter if used to mend a pen yet even a razor is shaped like a wedge that it may not receive too fine an edge when stropped with its face flat upon the hone nails substitutes for lashings of rawhide supersede nails for almost every purpose it is perfectly marvellous how a gunstock that has been shattered into splinters can be made as strong again as ever by means of rawhide sewn round it and left to dry or by drawing the skin of an ox's leg like a stocking over it it is well to treat your bit of skin as though parchment which see were to be made of it bearing the skin and scraping off the hair before sewing it on that it may make no eyesore tendons or stout fish skin such as shagreen may also be used on the same principle an axle tree cracked lengthwise can easily be mended with rawhide even a broken wheel tire may be replaced with rhinoceros or other thick hide if the country to be travelled over be dry Bathes may be wanted by a traveller because the pulleys necessary for a large sailing-boat and the screw of a carpenter's bench cannot be made without one the sketch will recall to mind the original machine now almost forgotten in england but still in common use on the continent it is obvious that makeshift contrivances can be set up on this principle two steady points being the main things wanted a forked bow suffices for a treadle 
a very common indian lathe consists of two tent pegs two nails for the points a leather thong and some makeshift hand rest neither pole nor treadle is used but an assistant takes one end of the thong in one hand and the other end in the other hand and hauls away in a seesaw fashion for turning hollows a long spike is used instead of a short point then a hole is bored into the wood to the depth of the intended hollow and the spike is pushed forward until it abuts against the bottom of the hole one form of lathe is simplicity itself two thick stakes are driven in the ground so far apart as to include the object to be turned a cross piece is lashed to them by a creeper cut out of the jungle for the double purpose of holding them together and of serving as a rest for the gouge the object is turned with a thong as already described charcoal tar and pitch charcoal dig a hole in the earth or choose some gigantic burrow or old well and fill it with piles of wood arranging them so as to leave a kind of chimney down the centre the top of the hole is now to be covered over with sods excepting the chimney down which a brand is dropped to set fire to the wood the burning should be governed by opening or shutting the chimney top with a flat stone it should proceed very gradually for the wood ought to smoulder and never attain to a bright red heat the operation require from two days to a week the tarry products of the wood drain to the bottom of the well tar is made by burning larch fir or pine as though charcoal had to be made dead or withered trees and especially their roots yield tar most copiously a vast seal is easily obtained it collects at the bottom of the pit and a hole with smooth sides should be dug there into which it may drain for making tar on a smaller scale ram an iron pot full of pine wood reverse it and lay it upon a board pierced with a hole one inch in diameter then prop the board over another pot buried in the earth make all air tight with wet clay round the upper pot and board covering the board but exposing the bottom of the reverse pot make a grand fire above and around the latter and the tar will freely drop it will be thin and not very pure tar but clean and it will thicken on exposure to the air pitch is tar boiled down turpentine and resin turpentine is a juice secreted by the pine fir or larch tree in blisters under the bark the trees are tapped for the purpose of obtaining it resin is turpentine boiled down end of chapter forty chapter forty one of the art of travel this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by kate mackenzie the art of travel by sir francis galton chapter forty one metals fuel for forge dry fuel gives out far more heat than that which is damp as a comparison of the heating powers of different sorts of fuel it may be reckoned that one pound of dry charcoal will raise seventy-three pounds of water from freezing to boiling one pound of pit coal about sixty pounds and one pound of peat about thirty pounds some kinds of manure fuel give intense heat and are excellent for blacksmith's purposes that of goats and sheep is the best camel's dung is next best but is not nearly so good then that of oxen the dung of horses is of little use except as tinder in lighting a fire bellows it is of no use attempting to do blacksmith's work if you have not a pair of bellows these can be made of a single goatskin of sufficient power in skilful hands to raise small bars of iron to a welding heat 
the goat's head is cut off close under the chin his legs at the knee joint and a slit is made between the hind legs through which the carcass is entirely extracted after dressing the hide two strongish pieces of wood are sewn along the slit one at each side just like the ironwork on each side of the mouth of a carpet-bag and for the same purpose that is to strengthen it a nozzle is inserted at the neck to use this apparatus its mouth is opened and pulled out then it is suddenly shut by which means the bellows are made to enclose a bagful of air this by pushing the mouth flat home is ejected through the nozzle these bellows require no valve and are the simplest that can be made they are in use throughout india the nozzle or tube to convey the blast may be made of a plaster of clay or loam mixed with grass and moulded round a smooth pole metals to work iron ore is more easily reduced than the ore of any other metal it is usually sufficient to throw the ore into a charcoal fire and keep it there for a day or more when the pure metal will begin to appear welding composition for iron or steel is made of borax ten parts sal ammoniac one part to be melted run out on an iron plate and when cold pounded for use cast steel a mixture of one hundred parts of soft iron and two of lamp soot melts as easily as ordinary steel more easily than iron this is a ready way of making cast steel when great heat cannot be obtained case hardening is the name given to a simple process by which the outside of iron may be turned into steel small tools fish hooks and keys etc are usually made of iron they are fashioned first and case hardened afterwards there are good reasons for this first because it is the cheapest way of making them and secondly because while steel is hard iron is tough and anything made of iron and coated with steel combines some of the advantages of both metals the civilized method of case hardening is to brighten up the iron and to cover it with prussiate of potash either powdered or made into a paste the iron is then heated until the prussiate of potash has burned away this operation is repeated three or four times finally the iron now covered with a thin layer of steel is hardened by quenching it in water in default of prussiate of potash animal or even vegetable charcoal may be used but the latter is a very imperfect substitute to make animal charcoal take a scrap of leather hide hoof horn flesh blood anything in fact that has animal matter in it dry it into hard chips like charcoal before a fire and powder it put the iron that is to be case hardened with some of this charcoal round it into the midst of a lump of loam this is first placed near the fire to harden and then quite into it where it should be allowed to slowly attain a blood-red heat but no higher then break open the lump take out the iron and drop it into water to harden lead is very useful to a traveller for he always has bullets which furnish the supply of the metal and it is so fusible that he can readily melt and cast it into any required shape using wood or paper partly buried in the earth for his mould if a small portion of the lead remain unmelted in the ladle the fluid is sure not to burn the mould by attending to this a wooden mould may be used scores of times figure one in the printed edition of this book shows how to cast a leaden plate which would be useful for inscriptions for notices to other parties 
if minced into squares it would make a substitute for slugs the figure represents two flat pieces of wood enclosing a folded piece of paper and partly buried in the earth the lead is to be poured into the paper to make a mould for a pencil or a rod which may be cut into short lengths for slugs roll up a piece of paper as shown in figure two of the printed edition and bury it in the earth reeds when they are to be obtained make a stronger mould than paper to cast a lamp a bottle or other hollow article use a cylinder of paper buried in the ground as in figure three of the printed edition and hold a stick fast in the middle while the lead is poured round loose shaky articles often admit of being set to rights by warming the joints and pouring a little melted lead into the cracks tin solder for tin plates is made of one or two parts of tin and one of lead before soldering the surfaces must be quite bright and close together and the contact of air must be excluded during the operation else the heat will tarnish the surface and prevent the adhesion of the solder the borax and resin commonly in use affect this the best plan is to clean the surfaces with muriatic acid saturated with tin this method is invariably adopted by watchmakers and opticians who never use borax and resin the point of the soldering tool must be filed bright copper to tin clean the copper well with sandstone heat it and rub it with sal ammoniac till it is quite clean and bright the tin with some powdered resin is now placed on the copper which is made so hot as to melt the tin and allow it to be spread over the surface with a bit of rag a very little tin is used in this way it is said that a piece as big as a pea would tin a large saucepan which is at the rate of twenty grains of tin to a square foot of copper end of chapter forty one chapter forty two of the art of travel this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the art of travel by sir francis galton chapter forty two leather rawhides dressing hides skins that have been dressed are essential to a traveller in an uncivilized country for they make his packing straps his bags his clothes shoes nails and string therefore no hide should be wasted there is no clever secret in dressing skins it is hard work that they want either continual crumpling and stretching with the hands or working and trampling with the feet to dress a goat skin will occupy one person for a whole day to dress an ox hide will give hard labor to two persons for a day and a half or even for two days it is best to begin to operate upon the skin half an hour after it has been flayed. If it has been allowed to dry during the process, it must be re-softened by damping, not with water, for it will never end up being supple, if water is used, but with whatever the natives generally employ. Clotted milk and linseed meal are used in Abyssinia, cow dung in the Caffrey's and Bushmen. When a skin is put aside for the night, it must be rolled up to prevent it from becoming dry by the morning. It is generally necessary to slightly grease the skin when it is half-dressed, to make it thoroughly supple. Smoking Hides Mr. Catlin, speaking of the skins used by the North American Indians, 
says that the greater part of them grew through still another operation afterwards, besides dressing, which gives them a greater value and renders them more serviceable, that is, the process of smoking. For this, a small hole is dug in the ground, and a fire is built in it with rotten wood, which will produce a great quantity of smoke without much blaze, and several small poles of the proper length stuck in the ground around it, and drawn and fastened together at the top, making a cone, around which a skin is wrapped in form of a tent, and generally sewed together at the edges to secure the smoke within it. Within this the skins to be smoked are placed, and in this condition the tent will stand a day or two, enclosing the heated smoke, by some chemical process or other, which I do not understand, the skins thus acquire a quality which enables them, after being ever so many times wet, to dry soft and pliant as they were before, which secret I have never seen practiced in my own country, and for lack of which all our dressed skins, when they are once wet, are, I think, chiefly ruined. A single skin may conveniently be smoked by sewing the edges together, so as to make a tube of it. The lower end is tied round an iron pot, with rotten wood burning inside. The upper end is kept open with a loop, and slung to a triangle. Tanning Hides Steep them in a strong solution of alum and a little salt, for a period dependent on the thickness of the hide. The gradual change of the hide into tan leather is visible, and should be watched. If desired, the hair may be removed before the operation, as described in parchment. Kid gloves are made of leather that has been prepared in this way. Greasing Leather All leather articles should be occasionally well rubbed with fat when used in hot, dry climates, or when they are often wetted and dried again. It makes a difference of many hundred percent in their wear. It is a great desideratum to be possessed of a supply of fat, but it is not easy to obtain from antelopes and other sinewy game. The French troops adopt the following method, which Lord Lucan copied from them, when in the Crimera. The marrow bones of the slaughtered animals are broken between stones. They are then well boiled, and the broth is skimmed when cold, to preserve hides in a dried state. After the hide has been flayed from a beast, if it is not intended to dress it, it should be pegged out in the sun. If it be also rubbed over with wood ashes, or better still, with salt, it will keep longer. Most small furs that reach the hands of English furriers have been merely sun-dried, but large hides are usually salted, before being shipped for Europe to be tanned. A hide that has been salted is injured for dressing by the hand, but it is not entirely spoiled, and therefore the following extract from Mr. Dana's two years before the mast, may be of service to travellers, who have shot many head of game in one place, or to those who have lost a herd of goats by distemper. Salting Hides The first thing is to put the hides to soak. This is done by carrying them down at low tide, and making them fast in small piles of ropes, and letting the tide come up and cover them. Every day we put twenty-five in soak for each man, which with us makes one hundred and fifty. There they lie for forty-eight hours, when they are taken out and rolled up in wheelbarrows, and thrown into vats. These vats contain brine made very strong, being sea-water, with great quantities of salt thrown in. This pickles the hides, and in this they lie for forty-eight hours, the use of the sea-water into which they are first put, merely to soften and clean them. From these vats they are taken to lie on a platform twenty-four hours. 
and they are then spread upon the ground and carefully stretched and staked out, so that they may dry smooth. After they were staked, and while yet wet and soft, we used to go upon them with our knives and carefully cut off all the bad parts, the pieces of meat and fat, which would otherwise corrupt and affect the whole if sewed away in a vessel for months, the large flippers, the ears, and all other parts that prevent close stowage. This was the most difficult part of our duty, and it required much skill to take off everything necessary and not to cut or injure the hides. It was also a long process, as six of us had to clean 150, most of which required a great deal to be done with them, as the Spaniards are very careless in skinning their cattle. Then, too, as we cleaned while they were staked out, we were obliged to kneel down upon them, which always gives beginners the backache. The first day I was so slow and awkward that I only cleaned eight. At the end of a few days I had doubled my number, and in a fortnight or three weeks could keep up with the others and clean my proportion. Twenty-five. End of chapter 42Chapter forty three of the Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick Wells. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter forty three Cord, String, Thread. General Remarks I have spoken of the strength of different cords in Alpine outfit. All kinds of cords become exceedingly rotten in hot, dry countries. The fishermen of the Cape preserve their nets by steeping them occasionally in blood. Thread and twine should be waxed before using them for sewing, whenever there is reason to doubt their durability. Substitutes The substitutes for thread, string, and cord are as follows. Thongs cut spirally, like a watch spring, out of a piece of leather or hide, and made pliant by working them around a stick, sinew, and catgut inner bark of trees. This is easily separated by long steeping in water, but chewing is better. Roots of trees, as the spruce fir, split to the proper size. Woodbines, runners, or pliant twigs twisted together. Some seaweeds, the only English one of which I have heard, is the common olive green weed, called cordophilium. It looks like a whip-thong, and sometimes grows to a length of thirty or forty feet. When half-dried, the skin is taken off and twisted into fishing lines, etc hay bands, horsehair ropes, or even a few twisted hairs from the tail of a horse. The stem of numerous plants afford fibers that are more or less effective substitutes for hemp. Those that are used by the natives of the country visited should be notices. Indian grass is an animal substance attached to the ovaries of small shark and some other fish of the same class. In lashing things together with twigs, hay bands, and the like, the way of securing loose ends is not by means of a knot which usually causes them to break, but by twisting the ends together until they kink, all faggots and trusses are secured this way. Sewing Sewing materials These are best carried in a linen bag. They consist of sail needles packed in a long box with cork wads at the ends to preserve their points, a sailor's palm, beeswax, twine, awls, bristles, cobbler's wax, large bodkin, packing needle, ordinary sewing needles, tailor's thimble, threads, cottons, silks, buttons, scissors, and pins. Stitches. The enthusiastic traveler should be thoroughly grounded by a tailor in the rudiments of sewing and the most useful stitches. They are as follows. To make a knot at the end of the thread, to run, to stitch, to sew, to fell, 
or otherwise to make a double seam, to herringbone, essential for flannels, to hem, to sew over, to bind, to sew on a button, to make a buttonhole, to darn, and to fine draw. He should also practice taking patterns of some articles of clothing and paper, cutting them out in common materials and putting them together. He should take a lesson or two from a saddler, and several, when on board ship, from a sailmaker. Needles to make. The natives of Uniora sew their beautifully prepared goatskins in a wonderfully neat manner, with needles manufactured by themselves. They make them not by boring the eye, but by sharpening the end into a fine point and turning it over, the extremity being hammered into a small cut in the body of the needle to prevent it from catching. Sir S. Baker. End of chapter 43. Chapter 44 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 44 Membrane, Sinew, Horn. Parchment, the substance which is called parchment, when made from sheep or goat skins, and vellum when from those of calves, kids, or dead-born lambs, can also be made from any other skin. The rawhide is buried for one or two days, till the hair comes off easily. Then it is taken out and well scraped. Next a skewer is run in and out along each of its four sides, and strings, being made fast to these skewers, the skin is very tightly stretched. It is carefully scraped over as it lies on the stretch, by which means the water is squeezed out, then it is rubbed with rough stones, as pumice or sandstone, after which it is allowed to dry, the strings by which the skewers are secured being tightened from time to time. If this parchment be used for writing, it will be found rather greasy, but washing it with ox gall will probably remedy this fault. In the regular preparation of parchment, the skin is soaked for a short time in a lime pit before taking off the hairs to get rid of the grease. Cat gut. Steep the intestines of any animal in water for a day, peel off the outer membrane, then burn the gut inside out, which is easily to be done by turning a very short piece of it inside out, just as you would turn up the cuff of your sleeve. Then, catching hold of the turned-up cuff, dip the hole into a bucket and scoop up a little water between the cuff and the rest of the gut. The weight of this water will do what is wanted. It will bear down an additional length of previously unturned gut, and thus, by a few successive dippings, the entire length of any amount of intestine, however narrow it may be, can be turned inside out in a minute or two. Having turned the intestine inside out, scrape off the whole of its inner soft parts. What remains is a fine transparent tube, which being twisted up tightly and stretched to dry, forms catgut. Membrane Thread Steep the intestines of any animal in water for a day, then peel off the outer membrane, which will come off in long strips. These should be twisted up between the hands and hung out to dry. They form excellent threads for sewing skins together, or indeed for any other purpose. Sinews for thread. Any sinews will do for making thread if the fibers admit of being twisted or plaited together into pieces of sufficient length. The sinews lying alongside the backbone are the most convenient, on account of the length of their fibers. After the sinew is dried, straight strips are torn off it of the proper size, 
they are wetted and scraped into evenness by being drawn through the mouth and teeth then by one or two rubs between the hand and the thigh they become twisted and their fibres are retained together a piece of dried sinew is usually kept in reserve for making thread or string glue is made by boiling down hides or even tendons hoofs and horns for a long time taking care that they are not charred then drawing off the fluid and letting it set isinglass is made readily by steeping the stomach and intestines of fish in cold water and then gently boiling them into a jelly this is spread into sheets and allowed to dry the air bladder of the sturgeon makes the true isinglass horn tortoiseshell and whalebone horn is so easily worked into shape that travellers especially in pastoral countries should be acquainted with its properties by boiling or exposing it to heat in hot sand it is made quite soft and can be moulded into whatever shape you will not only this but it can also be welded by heating and pressing two edges together which however must be quite clean and free from grease even the touch of the hand taints them sheets of horn are a well-known substitute for glass and are made as follows the horn is left to soak for a fortnight in a pond then it is well washed to separate the pith next it is sawn lengthwise and boiled till it can be easily split into sheets with a chisel which sheets are again boiled then scraped to a uniform thickness and set into shape to dry tortoise shell and whalebone can be softened and worked in the same way End of chapter 44Chapter 45 of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate McKenzie. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter 45 Pottery. To glaze pottery. Most savages have pottery, but few know how to glaze it. One way and that which was the earliest known of doing this is to throw handfuls of salt upon the jar when red-hot in the kiln the reader will doubtless call to mind the difficulties of robinson crusoe in making his earthenware water-tight substitute for clay in damaraland where there is no natural material fitted for pottery the savages procured mud from the interior of the white ant hills with which they made their pots they were exceedingly brittle but nevertheless were large and serviceable for storing provisions and even for holding water over the fire i have seen them two feet high what it was that caused the clay taken from the ant hills to possess this property i do not know pots for stores and caches an earthen pot is excellent for a store of provisions or for a cache because it keeps out moisture and insects and Animals cannot smell and therefore do not attack its contents. End of chapter 45 Chapter 46 of The Art of Travel This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton Chapter 46 Candles and Lamps Candles Moulds for Candles It is usual, on an expedition, 
to take tin moulds and a ball of wick for the purpose of making candles from time to time when fat happens to be abundant the most convenient mould is of the shape shown in the figure the tallow should be poured in when its heat is so reduced that it hardly feels warm to the finger that is just before setting if this be done overnight the candles will come out in the morning without difficulty but if you are obliged to make many at a time then after the tallow has been poured in the mould should be dipped in cold water to cool it and then when the tallow has set the mould should be dipped for a moment in hot water to melt the outside of the newly made candle and enable it to be easily extracted by this method the candles are not made so neatly as by the other though they are made more quickly it is well to take if not to make a proper needle for putting the wicks into the moulds it should be a hooked piece of wire like a crochet needle which catches the wick by its middle and pulls it doubled through the hole a stick across the mouth of the mould secures the other end when the tallow is setting give an additional pull downwards a gun barrel with a cork or wad put the required distance down the barrel has been used for a mould pull the candle out by the wick after heating the barrel two wads might be used the one strongly rammed in to prevent the tallow from running too far the other merely as a support for the wick perhaps even paper moulds might be used they could be made by gumming or pasting paper in a roll dip candles candles that are made by dipping gutter and run much more than mould candles if they have to be used as soon as made the way of dipping them is to tie a number of wicks to the end of a wooden handle so shaped that the whole affair looks much like a garden rake the wicks being represented by the teeth of the rake then the wicks are dipped in the tallow and each is rubbed and messed by the hand till it stands stiff and straight after this they are dipped all together several times in succession allowing each fresh coat of tallow to dry before another dipping wax candles are always made by this process substitute for candles a strip of cotton one and a half foot long drenched in grease and wound spirally round a wand will burn for half an hour a lump of beeswax with a tatter of an old handkerchief run through it makes a candle on an emergency materials for candles tallow mutton suet mixed with ox tallow is the best material for candles tallow should never be melted over a hot fire it is best to melt it by putting the pot in hot sand to procure fat see greasing leather page 343 wax boil the comb for hours together with a little water to keep it from burning then press the melted mass through a cloth into a deep puddle of cold water this makes beeswax see honey to find page 199 candlestick a hole cut with a knife in a sod of turf or a potato three four or five nails hammered in a circle into a piece of wood to act as a socket a hollow bone an empty bottle a strap with the end passed the wrong way through the buckle and coiled inside and a bayonet stuck in the ground are all used as makeshift candlesticks 
in bygone days the broad feet or rather legs of the swan after being stretched and dried were converted into candlesticks lloyd lamps lamps may be made of hard wood hollowed out to receive the oil also of lead see lead page three hundred and forty the shed hoof of an ox or other beast is sometimes used slush lamp is simply a pannikin full of fat with a rag wrapped round a small stick planted as a wick in the middle of it lantern a wooden box a native bucket or a calabash will make the frame and a piece of greased calico stretched across a hole in its side will take the place of glass a small tin such as a preserved meat case makes a good lantern if a hole is broken into the bottom and an opening in the side or front horn see page three hundred and forty seven is easily to be worked by a traveller into any required shape a good and often a ready makeshift for a lantern is a bottle with its end cracked off this is best effected by putting water into the bottle to the depth of an inch and then setting it upon hot embers the bottle will crack all round at the level of the top of the water it takes a strong wind to blow out a candle stuck into the neck inside the broken bottle alpine tourists often employ this contrivance when they start from their bivouac in the dark morning end of chapter 46
they will seem to be fairly branded in his memory but this is not the case for the crowds of new impressions during a few months or years of civilized life will efface the sharpness of the old ones i have conversed with men of low mental power servants and others the greater part of whose experiences in savagedom have passed out of their memory like the events of a dream alphabetical lists every explorer has a frequent occasion to drop long catalogues in alphabetical order whether of words for vocabularies or of things that he has in store now there is a right and a wrong way of setting to work to make them the wrong way is to divide the paper into equal parts and to assign one of them to each letter in order the right way is to divide the paper into parts of a size proportionate to the number of words in the english language which begin with each partial letter in the first case the paper will be overcrowded in some parts and utterly blank in others in the second it will be equally overspread with writing and an ordinary sized sheet of paper if closely and clearly written will be sufficient for the drawing up of a very extended catalogue a convenient way of carrying out the principle i have indicated is to take english dictionary and having divided the paper into as many equal parts as there are leaves in the dictionary to adopt the first word of each leaf as heading to them it may save trouble to my reader if i give a list of headings appropriate to a small catalogue we will suppose the paper to be divided into fifty-two spaces that is to say into four columns and thirteen spaces in each column then the headings of these spaces in order will be as follows a a d v a p p b a l b i l b r e c a p c h i c o l c o m c r a d e c d i s d u l e v e f i n g i n h e e i m p i n t k l a n m a c m i l n a p o f f p a l p e r p l e p r e p r o q u e r e c r e g r i s s a b s c a s h a s i z s o n s t a s c r s u r t e m t o s t u r u m b u n e v e n w e a w o r x y z verification of instruments on arriving at the sea level make daily observations of your boiling point thermometer barometer and aneroid as they are all subject to changes in their index errors as soon as you have an opportunity compare them with a standard barometer compare also your ordinary thermometer and azimuth compass with standard instruments and finally have them carefully re-verified at the Kew Observatory on your return to England. A vast deal of labor has been wholly thrown away by travelers owing to their neglect to ascertain their index errors of these instruments at the close of their journey. A careful observer ought to have eliminated the effects of instrumental errors from his sextant observations. Nevertheless, it will be satisfactory to him, and it may clean up some apparent anomalies, to have his entire instrumental outfit re-verified at Kew observations to recalculate send by post to england a complete copy always preserve the originals of all your astronomical observations that they may be carefully recalculated before you return 
otherwise a long period may elapse before the longitudes are finally settled and your book may be delayed through the consequent impossibilities of preparing a correct map the royal geographical society has frequently procured the recalculation of observations made on important journeys at the royal greenwich observatory and elsewhere i presume that a well-known traveller will never find any difficulty in obtaining the calculations he might desire though the medium of that society if it was distinctly understood that they were to be made at his own cost lithograph maps it may add greater to the interest which a traveller will take in drawing up a large and graphic route map of his journey if he knows the extreme ease and cheapness with which copies of such a map may be multiplied to any extent by a well-known process in lithography for these being distributed among persons interested in the country where he has travelled will prevent his painstaking from being lost to the world sketches and bird's-eye views may be multiplied in the same manner the method to which i refer is the so-called anastatic process the materials can be obtained with full instructions at any lithographer's shop and consists of autographic ink and pen the paper has been prepared by being glazed over with a composition and the ink is in appearance something like indian ink and used in much the same way with an ordinary pen with the ink and upon this paper the traveller draws his maps they are neither more nor less difficult to employ than common stationery and he may avail himself of tracing paper without danger he has one single precaution to guard against which is not to touch the paper over much with his bare hand but to keep a bit of loose paper between it and the map as he draws as soon as it is finished the map is taken to the lithographer who puts it face downward on a stone and passes it under his press when every particle of ink leaves the surface of the paper and attaches itself to the surface of the stone precisely as though it had originally been written there the glaze on the paper which prevents the ink from soaking in makes the transference more easy and complete the stone can now be worked with just as stone that has been regularly lithographed in the usual manner that is to say printing ink may be rubbed over it and impressions may be taken off in any number i will observe that the writing on the paper is reversed upon the stone and is re-reversed or set right again in the impressions that are taken from it the lithographer's charges for furnishing autographic ink and paper working the stone striking of fifty copies of a folio size and supplying the paper common white paper for the copies in fact every expense included need not exceed ten shillings and may be much less if before drawing his map the traveller were to go to some working lithographer and witness the process and make two or three experiments in a small way he would naturally succeed all the better a map drawn on a large scale though without any pretension to artistic skill with abundance of profile views of prominent landmarks and copious information upon the routes that were explored written along their sides would be the most value to future travellers and to geographers at home end of chapter forty seven end of the art of travel by sir francis galton